Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon the generous financial contributions of our listeners in order to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. Uh, would you please uh, support Fighting for the Faith financially by joining our crew or sending in a donation to uh, support us financially? You can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on the Join Our Crew button. That's a mere $6.95 a month. Or if you'd like to make a flat contribution, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button or making your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and sending it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Tuesday, December 29th, 2009. 2010, approach it. Oh man, I gotta tell you, as much as I love the food during the holidays, I am so glad <laughs> we do not have feasts like this on a daily basis. Otherwise, I would be guilty of the sin of gluttony. Oy. So glad to be exercising again and getting back on track to uh, trying to become half the man I used to be. That's, that's my big goal right now. Thank you for tuning in. You are listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro, and I am your servant in Jesus Christ. And this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which is to help you to think biblically, to help you to think critically, and to compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. Satan, our great enemy, is at work, and you would think that uh, the, the place where he is most active is out there in the world. I mean, with uh, with abortion running amok, people using drugs, and yeah, that's all sinful and stuff, but Satan's big work, where he really focuses most of his efforts, is on deceiving people in the Christian church. Why? Well, because he's already got the world. They're in the bag, if you know what I mean. And uh, that's where the real action is at when it comes to uh, Satan's activity in the world. It's right in the Christian church. And so Jesus Christ himself warned us about wolves, about those who uh, who are false prophets. And uh, we're to be looking out for them. That means that one of the th part of being a good Christian disciple, part of being a Christian disciple involves comparing what people are saying in the name of God. Because here's the deal. Wolves, they actually put on the sheepskin. They, they try to pass themselves off as sheep. And so the, 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 the false prophets and the false teachers are, People who outwardly look holy, outwardly look pious, outwardly talk about God, outwardly they, you know, you, you, I'm telling you, their their goal is to look like the authentic thing, okay? A false prophet doesn't necessarily want to look like some complete wacko out there. Um, you know, false prophets, the best of them are the ones that slip under the radar who are 90-something percent right in what they say, but the rest of it, 
Ooh, really, really, yeah, smells like sulfur kind of stuff. So you you got, here's the deal, you've got to compare what people are saying in the name of God to the word of God. God's word is true. We can trust it. How do I know? Because we can trust Jesus Christ. And his view of the scripture couldn't be any higher because they the scriptures contain his words because he's God in human flesh. The scripture contain his revelation about himself because he's God in human flesh. And how do we know we can trust him? Well, because he actually rose again on the third day after he was crucified under Pontius Pilate for our sins, by the way. And uh, therefore, uh, his resurrection absolutely proves his credentials to speak about such things with the authority that he spoke about them. And so we can trust God's word. Now, today's program, lot, <laughs> this is one of those times where I actually feel unprepared coming to the program. There's a, I, How's the saying go? Biting off more than you can chew. We've got lots to chew on today, and um, hopefully we can take it in small bites, and uh, we'll talk about what, what what's on deck for uh, today's edition of Fighting for the Faith. Uh, as promised yesterday, we didn't get to the story from the Telegraph in the UK. Apparently, a scientist is saying that angels can't fly. <laughs> <clears throat> yeah, we'll, we'll, yeah, we'll find out what uh, he's talking about here. This is one of those stories that I like to categorize as uh, kind of a waste of toner since I printed it out. But um, it's entertaining, so we'll take a look at it. Um, and then we're going to take uh, – last week I wanted to get to this, but I didn't get a chance to. We're going to uh, we're gonna do a little bit of emergent uh, liberalism uh, today. And uh, we're going to start with a blog post from Scott McKnight, who hangs on the outer fringes of the emergent church movement, uh, probably one of the best educated men as to what the emergent church is and what it isn't, and um, very educated man. This, this, this guy is no slouch by any stretch of the imagination, and in a lot of ways, I have a lot of respect for Scott McKnight, and uh, his uh, blog is called Jesus Creed. And um, and he's got a blog post that he did that he posted on December 21st called "Let's Get Universalism Straight." Now this is going to be a great this uh, uh, today is one of the themes for today, if you would, is um, is is this idea that you can make up anything you want about God. You can have any number of opinions, and you can opine all you want about what you think God is going to do or what you, or what you think God is like or what or it, try to extrapolate logically uh we know this about God and we know this about God therefore even though God's word doesn't say this we can surmise this 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 and this and this and this yeah the problem is is that once you kind of step outside of the circle of scripture and start speculating and trying to draw in your logical conclusions we got some problems, and that's what we'll take a look at regarding uh, universalism today. And uh, and then uh, we're going to uh, deconstruct liberalism, you know, deconstructing it. And uh, how are we going to do that? Well, recently on Doug Paget's radio program, if those of you who live in uh, Minneapolis, Minnesota, um, you are you have privy, you, you have direct access to listen live to his terrestrial radio program. Uh, I think he just calls it Doug Paget Radio, and uh, you can access the archives at DougPagetRadio.com. In fact, I'm, he's invited me to come on his program, and I will be his guest or one of his guests on January 17th. At least that's the plans, and I haven't heard anything contrary to that, so, and we've, we've uh, had a mind meld with our day planners. And so I, you know, I will be on at 1030 
on January 17th, and and that is in the, uh, it's not in the Eastern time zone, it's the one next to us in, uh, I think that's Central? Anyway, um, so, uh, anyway, so it's one hour behind the Eastern time zone, so I will be appearing, uh, I'll be his guest uh, on his radio program. Anyway, um, on the 20th of December, Doug Paget had as his guest uh, Bishop John Shelby Spong. And uh, Spong was on his program uh, basically um, schlocking his uh, new book, uh, Eternal Life, A New Vision Beyond Religion, Beyond Theism, Beyond Heaven and Hell. And I got to tell you, this is gold. This is just gold as far as an interview is concerned. So I, I think it's so good. I mean, I cannot possibly mine it for all that it's worth in one program. So what we're going to do today is we're going to take a listen to, uh, you know, basically, it's going to be our first pass. This is going to be our first pass, 20,000-foot view, listening to what he's saying, initial reactions. But I can see that there's going to be a there's going to be some series of things that we're going to be talking about on Fighting for the Faith using uh, this, the things that John Shelby Spong said on Doug Padgett's radio program. And then, uh, and then after that, we're going to be doing a segment that I call Rob Bell's Velvet Atonement. Rob Bell's Velvet Atonement. And uh, we're going to be taking a listen to how Rob Bell discusses the atonement. And uh, I got to tell you, on the discernment scale, this is a bona fide 9, 9.5 uh, on the difficulty scale. Because this, in order to spot the error in this one, you have to know what's missing. In order to know what's missing in this, you have to actually understand systematic theology as well as doctrine, a doctrinal theology. If you don't, and see, that's this is one of the reasons why I think the emergence and the emergings and and the and the, that group they're so anti-systematic theology. Why? Because if you do understand systematic theology, if you have studied it and you think there's value to it, then you are quickly able to discern things that are missing uh, that they play fast and loose with by through their narrative theology. So listen, it's, it's not that narrative theology trumps uh, systematic theology or, or vice versa. No, both are important and understand all theology really is for proclamation. Uh, you know, so it's not just about being nerdy and understanding these things. It's about knowing these truths and proclaiming them to the world and taking every thought captive and making obedient to Christ, as uh, Paul writes to us in his uh, one of his epistles to the Corinthian church. So we're going to be listening to Rob Bell's Velvet Atonement. And then our sermon review today is a Rob Bell sermon. And, and the reason why I'm doing the Velvet Atonement thing prior to the sermon review is because at the very, 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 very end, end of Rob Bell's sermon that we're going to be listening to. By the way, the sermon itself is on the Lord's Prayer, uh, and it's specifically on, supposedly it's specifically on forgiveness. At least that's what the title of it is about, is about forgiveness. And it was preached during Advent, so just a couple of weeks ago. And the reason why I'm doing this is because at the very, very end of his sermon, he talks about Jesus dying for us. And you think, I mean, those of you who, who've, who've heard me critique Rob Bell in the past are going to go, well, see, he, 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 he does believe Jesus died for our sins. I, I, now listen, just because somebody says that doesn't mean that that's what they believe. At least if you're, if, if you're talking about the penal substitutionary atonement 
and uh, things like that. I think there's an issue here. And so you have to listen carefully to what Rob Bell pours into the meaning of the atonement. And in order to really understand that and flesh it out, because when he talks crosstalk, when I mean he's talking the cross, uh, you got to listen very carefully to how he's using words. And so what we're going to do is we're going to look at Rob Bell's uh, doctrine of the atonement as it's as he teaches it in his book, Velvet Elvis, prior to listening to the sermon. So we've got a ton of ground to cover today. I apologize. It's going to be a long show. It, it, that's just the way it is sometimes. And, of course, I completely feel unprepared, underprepared for today's program, biting off more than I can chew. But that's okay. Um, we'll make the best of it. And, of course, if, if I miss anything, you all are faithful in sending me emails to pick up stuff that I might have overlooked and uh, feel free to email me. And uh, with that, we're going to dive into the program. Make yourself comfortable. Of course, if you're trying to lose weight like I am, 45 minutes on the elliptical today. 45 minutes on the elliptical today. I was sweating like a pig. Yeah, it uh, it was not pretty. I mean, it was one of those things where if somebody were actually to take a photograph of me um, at the tail end of my elliptical workout, it would just... I would end up paying money to, you know, blackmail money to keep them from posting it on the internet. It was just, ugh. but the good news is, you know, blood pressure's down, weights down, you know, there's good, there's some good things going on here with this exercise. So I'm kind of excited. But, and, and, and of course the, the new season of uh, the biggest loser starts a week from today. And those are my peeps, you know, and <laughs> yeah, I got to tell you that, you know, the biggest loser, I know that there's a lot of controversy regarding the biggest loser out there um, because, you know, their approach to getting these people to lose weight is is very controversial. Basically, you have people who are morbidly obese working out. I mean, and and, and on a few seasons, uh, there's some people who've ended up going to the hospital you know, because that's how sick they are. And so um, you know, I understand that there's controversy regarding that. But I got to tell you, there's something to be said about moving getting your body in motion so uh, anyway that's neither here nor there make yourself comfortable exercising is absolutely okay while listening uh, to fighting for the faith and of course if you would you know if you would like to enjoy an adult beverage we do not have a problem with that fuzzy bunny slippers uh, for those of you in the cold temperatures in the northern in the northern hemisphere those of you in the southern hemisphere I- i'm sorry summer is there yeah i just i cannot see uh, unless you're you're somewhere at the 8,000 foot level in Chile, um, south uh, southern hemisphere. Those of you listening in the southern hemisphere, I, fuzzy bunny slippers probably out for the next at least three to four months. So uh, with that, we're going to dive into the program proper, which means it's time to uh, play our vintage news music from the Telegraph in the UK. Headline reads: Angels can't fly. Scientist says. Okay, a leading biologist has compared the physiology of flighted species with the representations of spiritual and mythical creatures in art and found the angels and fairies that sit atop Christmas trees did not get there on their own steam. Oh, you've got to be kidding me. That is just stupid. Really? How many out there are you sitting there going, listening to this going, oh, no, I can't possibly be a Christian anymore because 
I've seen artwork depicting angels with wings, and now a, phys- a biologist, a physiology guy has basically said, nope, they can't fly. That's it. Christianity is not true. It's completely overthrown. I'm going to become an atheist. Professor Roger Watton from the University College of London found that flight would be impossible for angels portrayed with arms and bird-like feathered wings. Quote, even a cursory examination of the evidence in uh, representational arts show that angels and cherubs cannot take uh, take off and cannot use powered flight, said uh, Professor Watton. By the way, didn't scientists say that bumblebees can't fly? And yet those things harass me every summer. You know, you ever have a bumblebee come at you and just um, not in a good mood? So those those little critters can be just foul-tempered. And I remember one time I, I was at a park, and, uh, and we had lawn darts, and we had a tennis racket. And, stuff, and this bumblebee just was absolutely in fascinated with me to the point where it, I was thought it was trying to kill me. You know, it was buzzing me, you know, you know, like a measuresmith, you know, during the battle of Britain. And I was, so I grabbed a tennis racket and I, you know, and I used a really nice backhand and sent that thing flying. It was one of the best memories of my life. Why am I talking about that? Anyway, so, I mean, didn't scientists say the bumblebees can't fly? So we continue. <sighs> okay. It, quote, and even if uh, they used uh, uh, used gliding flight, they would need to be exposed to very high wind velocities at takeoff, such high winds that they would be blown away and have no need for wings. <sighs> Who can? <sighs> Interestingly, the artist said uh, Giotto uh, showed one angel with a rigid Mono wing, which would be an adaptation for a gliding flight. And uh, but if they do just glide, how are the wings folded, unfolded, and held rigid? Yeah, I'm serious. Has this guy stayed up at night? I mean, was there any research dollars wasted on this particular study? I mean, seriously, who cares if the artistic representation of an angel correctly depicts whether or not they could quote fly? <sighs> Angels and cherubs and putty, uh, babies with wings, adorn some of the world's most famous religious paintings and architecture, hovering in the air to witness the deeds of God and men. Their power to capture the imagination is so strong that a survey last year revealed that most Americans... Uh, believe in angels. The study by the Pew Forum on Religious and Public Life found that 68% of the uh, 36,000 adults polled thought that angels and demons were at work in the world. Apparently just not flying. (sighs) This is ridiculous. According to the latest study, birds' wings evolved from the forearms of their... Oh, yeah, we're done. Sometimes you just wonder you know, you, when you read some of the stories that come across major newspapers, you know, in their religion section, you just scratch your head and go, why? Why? I mean, were they having a slow week? Uh, yeah. Anyway, okay. Moving along. That's what we need to do now. Just move along. Just move along. Uh, Scott McKnight uh, in the Jesus Creed blog, he has a, a post called "Let's Get Universalism Straight." Again, uh, I've, I've exchanged several emails with Scott McKnight. He's a very smart guy, 
very intelligent. And um, like I said, he kind of hangs on the outer fringes of the emerging emergent thing. He knows it probably better than anybody else and has been blogging about it longer than anybody else. Um, some speculate that he's trying to distance himself from uh, the Tony Jones, Doug Paget, uh, emergent village vein of uh, the emergent movement uh, because it's really taken a hard left turn. Um, in fact, uh, you know, they when I was at the uh, Moltmann conference with Bob DeWay, uh, one of the well, somebody there had made the point of saying that you know Scott McKnight uh, he'd lived really close to where the Moltmann conference was being held and. Uh, there was, and he never really graced them with his presence, but uh, that's a completely other uh, topic. Just want to let you know. But uh, he's got this uh, post called "Let's Get Universalism Straight," and this is a great, great, great um, post to talk about um, where you know, to stick to the scriptures. Stick to the scripture. Stick to the scriptures. Uh, by the way, um, stick to the scriptures. I don't care about your opinions about God. And universalism here, as we will see as this thing develops, um, there's, uh, in order for it to be true, it, it, it requires you to unbuckle yourself from the word of God and then wander off into speculations based upon what you think are correct logical extrapolations of the gospel. Uh, you, you don't do this. This is es no bueno. Uh, we read, um, today I'd like to begin uh, blogging through uh, Gregory McDonald's book, The Evangelical uh, Universal, uh, Universalist. The first order of business, which is which is his too, is to get this term universalism straight, and I want to attach adjectives to his descriptions. After reading Perry's definition of Christian universalism, do you think it can be squared with the Bible? And the answer is no. This is kind of a little poll thing. Do you think it would be squared with Christian orthodoxy? No, this is all part of this thing. uh, Emergent guys like to ask uh, questions, engaging conversations. So there's conversation starters right here in the beginning part of the blog post. So he says, first, there's this thing called gospel gospel universalism. means that the gospel is for everyone, whether a person believes or not. Gospel universalism is why there is a missionary movement. Now, Got to be careful here. Uh, I'm an LCMS confessional Lutheran. Okay, now, now I should probably say I'm a confessional Lutheran who uh, is a member of an LCMS church, an LCMS congregation. Uh, confessional first, LCMS second is probably the better way to put it. Um, why do I attend an LCMS church? Because the LCMS church that I attend and I'm a member of um, is uh, is it completely subscribes to the confessions of the Lutheran church. Anyway, you got to understand this is that we believe scripture clearly teaches that Christ died for the sins of the whole world. Now, does that, that mean that everybody's saved? Well, no, actually, no, it doesn't mean that at all. Okay. So in one sense, I would say, I agree with quote gospel universalism in that Christ died for the sins of the world. Everybody, there ain't nobody, nowhere, no how that Christ didn't die for. Okay. Now, my Calvinist brothers would say, oh, no, there's weeping and gnashing of teeth among my Calvinist brothers. I completely get it. I stand by the texts. Again, Second uh, uh, Peter 2, uh, t- uh, look at that passage. Read it carefully. It talks about those who are heretics uh, who deny the very Lord who, quote, bought them. Um, you know, just want to point that out. Anyway, we continue. He says, second, there's a thing called divine desire universalism. And um, divine desire universalism teaches that God wants everyone to trust in Christ, 
Thus, God's desire is universalism, thought that desire can be frust- uh, uh, though that desire can be frustrated by human choice. Most Calvinists would affirm uh, would not affirm divine desire universalism. Yeah, I don't even think I the way that's defined. I can nope can't 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 subscribe to that one. Okay, and third is what, what's called effective universalism, which believes that everyone on planet Earth who has lived, is living, and will live will in the end be saved. Okay, now, um, I'm going to point something out here, okay? Um, effective universalism, okay? And the, there's a fourth called pluralistic, uh, pluralist universalism. And um, I don't see any substantive difference between the two. Now, uh, I, I was trained in theology and apologetics by Dr. Rod Rosenblatt of the uh, White Horse Inn fame. And um, one, of the th- one of his statements that he kind of drilled into our heads in class, and he, there was all kinds of Rod Rosenblatt-isms, uh, that if somebody were to actually, you know, any of you listening at Concordia, Irvine, and you're attending and you're taking classes with Dr. Rosenblatt, if you guys could start keeping a, a, a literal, uh, you know, a... A book, you know, a, a running uh, glossary of Rod Rosenblatt-isms, I kid you not. You guys could probably sell that thing on the web and make all kinds of money. Anyway, um, one of the things that uh, Dr. Rosenblatt drilled into our heads is this statement. A difference that makes no difference is no difference at all. Repeat after me. A difference that makes no difference is no difference at all. And so the third and fourth here, the third is we already read it. Effective universalism believes that everyone on planet Earth who has lived, is living, and will live will in the end be saved. Okay. Um, There's a fourth called pluralist universalism believes that everyone on planet Earth will be saved regardless of that person's religious faith. Okay. Um, See, the thing is, is, yeah, a difference that makes no difference is no difference at all. If in the end everybody's saved, um, effective uh, pluralism and pluralist universalism, yeah, no. Now, the question is, uh, does the Bible teach that everyone's going to be saved? Okay, let me continue with this. Um, there's a fifth category here, but we'll, and I, we'll talk about this here. Robin Perry, the actual author of this book, uh, uh, who uses a pseudonym, uh, Gregory MacDonald, believes in Christian universalism, which we will define um, here as, so fifth, Christian universalism believes in all the classic evangelical and orthodox doctrines, I, uh, for instance, the Trinity, God's creation, sin, the atonement, the return of Christ, salvation through Christ alone, grace alone, faith alone, and also in hell. Okay, so Christian universalism apparently believes in you know everything of orthodox Christianity, but now Scott did a good job here. He actually made the but here um, really big and bold. But here's the big but. One's eternal destiny one's eternal destiny is not fixed at death so that those in hell can repent and trust in Christ and in the end all will make this decision without coercion okay so there's this thing and by the way that Christian universalism is a growing you know growing uh doctrine teaching among many of the postmoderns uh, in in uh, evangelicalism, in, in the emerging and emergent movements, there's this universalism that's running rampant. So uh, Perry here talks about Christian universalism. So here's the deal, okay? I personally do not see any difference, although there's some technical nuances, 
between effective universalism, pluralist universalism, and Christian universalism. Ultimately, everybody is saved. Okay? So, um, but McKnight says, uh, thus, this Christian universalism is not pluralism. It does not find redemption anywhere outside of Christ. It does not deny hell or final punishment for rebellion and sin, etc. Actually, it does. Final punishment? Final punishment? Yeah, see... Uh, but it also affirms that death itself does not end a person's consciousness or, or a chance to respond to the grace of God. Okay, now, here's the deal. Can we embrace Christian universalism? Answer, not on your life, Okay. Not on your life. How come I'm saying that? Here's the here's the reason why. Listen carefully. Okay. Christian universalism affirms all of the normal classical evangelical and orthodox doctrines: the Trinity, which is found in the Bible; creation, which is scriptural; sin, which is scriptural; the atonement, which is scriptural; the return of Christ, which is scriptural; salvation through Christ alone, grace alone, faith alone, which is scriptural; and also in hell, which is scriptural. But one's eternal destiny is not fixed at death, not found in the scripture, so that those in hell can repent and trust in Christ, not found in scripture. And in the end, all will make this decision without coercion, not found in scripture. You see what's going on there? Nowhere in scripture does it teach that one's eternal destiny is not fixed at death. In fact, there's clear passages that teach against it. Uh, and that those in hell can repent. Nowhere in Scripture does it say such a thing. That's complete speculation. And then in the end, all will make this decision without coercion. By the way, we're not saved by our decision, are we? No, we're not. Now, I'm going to take a break. When we come back, we're going to take a look at some of the passages, just clear passages to go to regarding this, and uh, and you know, and how we can say definitively that uh, these conclusions are not in keeping with the clear teachings of the Word of God, specifically the the clear teachings of Jesus Christ himself. Okay, so uh, again, the the whole point of this little exercise, though, is to point out there's some, you know, notice these people are affirming orthodoxy and they're also affirming this other stuff. And where are they getting that other stuff? They're making it up. They want it to be that way. They they think that God should do it this way, and so they believe in something that's not taught in Scripture. That's not what you and I are called to do. We are called to trust the Scriptures, trust what the Scriptures teach, trust what Christ has taught, and to not let our minds wander off into these other things, which are really nothing more than mythologies and human opinions. And human opinions ultimately end up becoming false doctrine and uh, that undermine the gospel itself and evangelism itself. I mean, I mean, if everyone's going to eventually be saved, why go out and proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins? Everyone's going to make this decision eventually without co- coercion. I'm going to go uh, to Tahiti and uh, see how I look in a, in, in a smaller bathing suit. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to do that to you guys' minds. All right, we're up on our first break. If you'd like to email me, you can. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. That's talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter. Again, my name there again, pirate Christian. 
We'll be right back. Christianity, we need to rediscover it. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Hello, I wish to register a complaint. Uh, we're closing for lunch. Never mind that, my lad. I wish to complain about the sermon that I purchased a day ago from this very boutique. Uh, yes, uh, what, what's wrong with it? I'll tell you what's wrong with it, my lad. It's a dead sermon, that's what's wrong with it. No, not possible. You just preached it wrong. Look, matey, I know a dead sermon when I preach one, and I know that the sermon I preached yesterday was certainly dead. Jesus Christ wasn't mentioned once, not even in the footnotes. No, no, you just weren't charismatic enough. Remarkable sermon, beautiful imagery. The imagery don't enter into it. It's stone dead. No, 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 no. You're just not open-minded enough. All right, then. If it's not dead, then I shall be able to preach the gospel. I read a portion of it. Ahem. And then the camp counselor told all of the woodland creatures to become more righteous so that they, too, could get to the place called heaven. You, you see what I mean? This is ridiculous. There. I found the gospel in the sermon. No, you didn't. That was you just writing the word gospel on the cover of the room temperature sermon. Well, I never. Yes, you did. I, I never, never did anything. This entire sermon fails to preach anything that's worth anything to anyone. Now, that's what I call a dead sermon. No, no, no. You haven't looked deep enough into yourself. You must be joking. Yeah, well, you're just being divisive, and you refuse to accept the message that's being presented. Um, now, look. Now, look, mate. I've definitely had enough of this. That sermon is definitely rotten. And when I purchased it not but a day ago, you assured me that it was Christ-centered, cross-focused, and filled to bursting with the gospel. Well, if you would just read the title. Read the title? What kind of title is this anyway? Super Spiritual Happy Fun Friends Adventure Camp Pack. Well, this particular sermon is designed to draw large audiences, and that's what you said you wanted. It has lovely imagery. Look, I took the liberty of examining this sermon after I preached it, and I discovered the only reason why I bought it in the first place was because it had been put into the wrong sleeve package. Well, of course it's in the wrong package sleeve. If I hadn't put a less suspicious cover on the sermon, you'd have had people chasing you just so that they can hear you preach it. Chasing me down the street? Mate, listen, people wouldn't be chasing me to hear this rubbish if I was firing midgets out of cannons. It's bleeding demise. You didn't buy the midget cannon expansion pack? The sermon has passed on. The sermon is no more. It has ceased to be. It's expired and gone to me and its maker. It's a stiff. Bereft of life, it burns in hell. If you hadn't put it in the wrong package sleeve, I would be using it for Firestarter. The thought processes that brought it about are now history. It's off the twig. It's kicked the bucket. The bleeding choir invisible wouldn't listen to this sham. This is an ex-sermon. Uh, well, well, I, I better replace it then. Let's see. Uh, Christ-centered uh, gospel Jesus. Uh, uh, 
Well, sorry, Squire. I've had a look around in the back of the shop and, uh, well, we're right out of well, whatever it is that you're looking for. I see. I see. I get the picture. I, I got a sermon here from Rick Warren. Does it contain Jesus Christ and his atoning sacrifice? Well, no, not really. Well, that's hardly a replacement, is it? Look, if, if, if you're really dead set on the whole Jesus thing, I suggest that you look up Pirate Christian Radio. All they do is talk about Jesus 24-7. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Pirate Christian Radio? Very well, I'll give them a try. Are you tired of lousy service? When you need help with repairs around the house, Angie's List members will help you decide which service companies to trust and which ones to avoid. Kiplinger said Angie's List is a virtual backyard fence with talk about the dry cleaner, the drywaller, and everything in between. With Angie's List, you get access to great local reviews on their website, live support through their call center, the award-winning Angie's List magazine, and access to their complaint resolution team, as well as discounts from highly rated service companies. If you'd like to find out more about Angie's List and their unbiased reviews of service companies and doctors in your area, then call them toll-free at 877-225-0478. Again, that's 877-225-0478. Call Angie's List today, and you'll be done with lousy service forever. All right, we're back. Warning, I want to point out the fact that it's Satan who's the one who asks, did God really say? Never Christ, always the devil. All right, I need to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. And uh, the only way we're able to bring this program to you is through the generous support of you, our listeners. And uh, right now, we are still, you know, roughly, you know, about we need about 650 folks to join our Fighting for the Faith Pirate Christian Radio crew. It is a mere $6.95 a month. And by joining that mere $6.95 a month multiplied by 1,000, once we get to 1,000, and boy, we've got a ways to go, um, once we get to 1,000, then uh, that ensures that on a monthly basis, we're able to pay at least the minimum amount of our bills. And so it's it's actually vital, uh, mucho importante, that we do so. And I'm hoping that after we get past the thousand, that maybe, just maybe, uh, we can bump that up enough to where I can get some part time help around here at <laughs> Christian Radio. Anyway, uh, the way you join our Fighting for the Faith Pirate Christian Radio crew is by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on the Join Our Crew button and pay close attention because when you finish uh, the the online uh, processing, once that's done, that the, the screen right after that has a button on it that says click here to uh, uh, for info to access the Pirate Christian Cove. I Like I said, I, I've been working on a huge uh, dump of uh, stuff that we're getting ready to put there, hopefully – End of this week, beginning of next is when we're going to start releasing that. But we've got a lot of stuff that we're working on for the Cove right now. Anyway, uh, so again, if once you join the crew, you have access to the Cove. That's one of the perks, one of the benefits, uh, you know, for being in the club, if you would. And of course, if you'd like to donate above and beyond, you can do so by making your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and sending it to Post Office Box 508 Fishers, Indiana, 
zip code 46038. Okay, talking about Christian universalism, here's the deal. Okay, I've already pointed out the fact that Christian universalism claims to believe in Orthodox Christianity and uh, that the Trinity, creation, sin, atonement, the return of Christ, salvation, Christ's return, uh, Christ, salvation through Christ alone, grace alone, faith alone, all of that is taught in the scriptures. The rest of this stuff, um, it, one's eternal destiny is not fixed at death. Uh, one, people can repent and trust in Christ in hell and that everybody will eventually make that decision. Nowhere taught in the Bible. Nowhere taught in the Bible. In fact, it does fly in the face of some very clear passages. Okay, let me give you just a couple to kind of whet your appetite, if you would. But uh, we read from Hebrews chapter 9 for context. I'm going to start in verse 24. Here's what it says. For Christ has entered not uh, not into holy places made with hands, uh, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own, for then he would have to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But, as it is, he has appeared once and for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Now, Pay real close attention here, because one of the things the scriptures do is they end up parallel. You get two things parallel stuck together, and so if you lose one, you lose the other. Okay, so what's what's the the really the foundation context here of this passage in Hebrews nine, especially the tail end of the chapter? It's talking about the once for all sacrifice of Christ for our sins. Okay, now watch what it's watch now what is paired to it, verse twenty seven. For just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Just as it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes the judgment. Uh, Hebrews nine twenty seven absolutely contradicts quote Christian universalism. Christian universalism is a heresy. Sorry, it, it flies in the face of Scripture. Now, let me let me throw some other things in here. Uh, was Jesus a universalist? It was it, and that's that's an actually an important question. Now, of course, the postmodern go, well, that's really arrogant of you. You can't believe that you would actually be able to tell whether or not Jesus. Well, yeah, just get over it. Jesus talks about uh, things like this, and um, we're going to start in uh, Hebrew. Uh, sorry, Matthew chapter seven, and for context, we're going to start at verse twelve. Okay, <clears throat> here we go. By the way, this is in the red letters for those of you um, emergent liberal types out there. Uh, we read, so whatever you wish uh, that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Verse 13, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction and those who enter it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life and those who find it are few. 
Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. For instance, uh, um, emergence, <laughs> they condone homosexual marriage. That's a fruit of their doctrine. Bad fruit. <clears throat> a healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Uh, thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Now, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Jesus doesn't sound like he's a universalist, does he? Matthew 25, I constantly go to this passage. I hate to bring it up again, but it's important because it answers the question. By the way, the whole chapter itself um, really deals with this topic. Um, for instance, um, let's just take a look at this. You know, I never talk about the uh, the parable of the virgins, but let's do it. This Is, is this a, a parable that teaches universalism or final judgment? We read, then the kingdom of heaven will be like 10 virgins, by the way, Chapter 25, verse 1, reading from my new and brand new uh, Lutheran study Bible. This thing's amazing, by the way. Uh, then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish, five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. By the way, you're saying, what, 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 how do you interpret this? Real simple, oil equals faith. Oil equals faith. If you have faith, you have oil. Okay, Faith and trust in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Okay, As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight, there was a cry. Here is the bridegroom. Come out and meet him. Now, point something out here. Okay. okay. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. What are we talking about here? Death. <laughs> okay. Okay. So here they die. This, this parable is understood this way. Okay. Oil equals faith, sleeping equals death. The bridegroom is here. Come out and meet him. This is the return of Christ. Okay. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, give us some of your oil for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered saying, since there will not be enough for us and for you, go gather the dealers and uh, go, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going out, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I, I don't know you. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. See, yeah, it just doesn't work that. Of course, then the, the killer passage, the one that just sticks the nail in the coffin, if you would, is from Matthew 25, same chapter. At the tail end, we read the, the, the story of the sheep and the goats. By the way, they're separated by what they are, not what they did. Only after they're separated is what they did mentioned. And we read about, you know, the, the, the sheep end up 
coming into the blessing of the Father, the goats are being sent off to hell. We read. Okay. Then, this is chapter 25, verse 45. Then he will answer the goats, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these, the goats, will go away into eternal punishment. Eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. And by the way, this is red letters for those of you liberal types out there listening. Um, So here we've got Jesus himself making it clear that the sheep go away to eternal life. The goats go away to eternal punishment. Nowhere in scripture, nowhere in God's word is it taught that one's eternal destiny is not fixed at death? No, it doesn't teach that at all. So that people in hell can repent, and in the end, everyone will make a decision to trust in Christ without coercion. By the way, we're not saved by our decision to trust in Christ. Nowhere. The clear teaching of the word of God is that it is appointed for man to, to live once and then to face judgment. Hebrews nine twenty seven. And when Christ judges, his judgment is eternal. The length of the sentence is eternity, eternal life or eternal punishment, plain and simple. Jesus was no universalist at all. And so this Christian universalism that is really taking root in evangelicalism today, uh, thanks to the emerging guys, Uh, It needs to be rejected outright. It's a false doctrine, ultimately, that undermines the gospel itself and even the need to proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name. So there you have it. All right. Okay. Moving along here. Now, this next segment, very interesting. This is going to be our first time through this, okay? Bishop, retired Episcopal liberal bishop, John Shelby Spong, recently appeared on, in fact, it was December 20th, on Doug Paget's radio program. Now, what I've done is, is I've taken, for the most part, taken Doug out of this. I really want to focus in on what uh, Bishop Spong is saying. Why? Because this stuff is gold. Now, he's going to be, he's pushing his new book entitled Eternal Life, A New Vision Beyond Religion, Beyond Theism, Beyond Heaven and Hell. Okay, and uh, so what's really interesting, and this this first segment, I want you to listen very carefully. Okay, he's going to try to divine what eternal life is, and he's not going to use the Bible to do it. Okay, listen carefully to what source of authority he's going to what in when in discuss in discussing the topic of eternal life a new vision beyond religion beyond theism beyond heaven and hell okay that's the name of the book here's john shelby spunk uh i've been working on this book in some way for 25 years and uh intensively for the last three and the reason the reason i decided to do it is that I find very few people actually believe in life after death today, even in the church. Okay, now listen. He's, he's, he's been inspired to write this. He's been working on it for 25 years, and, he's, and the reason why is because people today in the church don't believe in life after death. Hallmark of liberalism. 
people out there don't believe in it, therefore we've got to cater to them. They're right. The Bible's not right. Listen carefully. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's faded. It's faded badly. Funeral services have become really memorial services in England. The number one hymn or one known piece of music that the people like to use in uh, funerals is Frank Sinatra singing My Way. Uh, that's a mm-hmm. long way from where we were, say, 200 years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, I find great theologians today. Now, notice uh, he's not condemning where things have gone and say we need to call people to repentance and the forgiveness of sins in in Jesus' name and get them back to what the scriptures teach. No, he's just saying this is what's going on. So I'm I'm going along. I'm going with the flow. That's what liberals do. They like Don Cupid in England and Robert Funk, who founded the Jesus Seminar in America, and Lloyd Gehring in New Zealand, and others. saying publicly that that they don't believe in life after death they think it's nothing more than a pious delusion mm-hmm. okay so he's <laughs> funk he's quoting really really liberal scholars here you know basically making reference to them and the fact that they don't believe in life after death it's a pious delusion they say who cares what the scholars say what does the scriptures teach did, does, does, did Christ believe in life after death? Based upon passages I just read to you. Did the scriptures teach that there's life after death? Continue. And, you know, so I analyze the reasons for that. The reasons for that are, one, that, that we don't really believe in a supernatural God who lives above the sky any longer. Life after death used to postulate this God who would uh, keep record books and write down all your deeds and misdeeds and no life after death didn't postulate that the the god of that's revealed in scriptures put that out there confront you with it at the day of judgment and determine your eternal destiny that's really no longer believed by most anybody so maybe some fundamentalists would still say that yep i'm one of them <laughs> The scriptures teach it. Christ taught it. He meant it. But it's not really in... People don't organize their lives around mm-hmm. those principles. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because people don't organize their lives around these principles, we, uh, we just need to jettison them. People don't believe this anymore, so we don't need to deal with that anymore. We also uh, don't really believe in a supernatural invasive God anymore. We used to blame hurricanes and sickness on God's action. Right, see that 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 invasive, all-knowing, supreme being who punishes sin and calls us to repent. He doesn't exist. This is a guy who was a bishop in a church. Uh, to punish people, every now and then you have somebody that does. Pat Robertson said that Hurricane Katrina hit New Orleans because it was the birthplace of Ellen DeGeneres. Now, by the way, that critique of uh, of... Whoever said that, was it Pat Robertson? Valid. I mean, saying that uh, God punished New Orleans because that was the birthplace of Ellen DeGeneres? Uh, No. It's disasters like Katrina, disasters like the the loss of uh, 250,000 people because of the tsunami in Indonesia. All of these are a result of our sin, and God, through these disasters, is calling us to repentance, to humble ourselves, and to trust in him for the forgiveness of our sins. That's really what's going on there. 
somehow taking Katrina and limiting it down to the very specific reason why Katrina happened is because Ellen DeGeneres was born there. How do you repent of that sin? There's a problem there. I mean, if that's really what Pat Robertson said, I mean, seriously, how does, you know, how does the city of New Orleans repent of having Ellen DeGeneres born there? That doesn't make any sense. And that made nothing except late-night comedy um, fodder. That's really not something that people deeply believe. So, you know, I I looked at all the erosion around that, and yet I also look at the human experience of having moments of transcendence. He's not looking in the Bible. He's looking at what people believe, and then, oh, yeah, and then in in our human experience, we have experiences of transcendence. Where's the Bible here? You're going to actually – John Shelby Spong has apparently written an entire book about eternal life – and a new vision beyond religion, beyond theism, beyond heaven and hell, and he's not basing any of it on what the Bible teaches? Moments of where time seems to cease, moments where you participate in, in something beyond yourself. I looked at Carl Jung's collective unconscious that we... Really, you looked at... Can you see Carl Jung's collective unconscious? seem to participate in. I went out into the fringes of knowledge today, the field of parapsychology, for example. So he, he, went, into the, he went into the field of parapsychology to come up with determinations regarding life after death. And ask questions about how it's possible that human beings are the only creatures that are able to be hypnotized. Human beings are the only creatures that commit suicide. Human beings are the only... Don't lemmings commit suicide? only creatures that use drugs to get them through the day and of a- don't uh, don't koala bears aren't they high all the time off those eucalyptus leaves began to analyze what there was about human life that uh, that could give us some hint as to uh, what our ultimate destiny was so he's looking at human life to f- get some kind of a hint as to what our ultimate destiny is this is a guy who is a retired bishop from a quote church denomination looking at our looking at all these things to come up with a hint as to what's going to happen what does this tell you about his view of the scriptures and so it was a it was a long and and rather torturous process but uh, one that at least for me came to uh, a significant conclusion so there, there you have the basis of his uh, of what he's doing here. He's going to try to divine, get a hint as to what's going on in the afterlife by looking at every other source known to man, uh, parapsychology, Carl Jung's collective unconsciousness, uh, the, the, the experiences of the quote transcendent um, and uh, drug use, suicide, and uh, this grueling pr- and then nowhere, no trust whatsoever. And, God's word. This is just an exercise in pure futility. And that's what liberalism is all about. No confidence, no faith, no trust in God's word that it can tell us the truth. We don't we have more than a hint about what's going to happen after we die in the Bible. It's more than a hint. There's some very explicit stuff stated in the scriptures regarding life after death. What's going to happen on the day of judgment and God's wrath? And and Christ's glory is appearing. Yeah, can't trust that. Apparently, we got to go to the realm of parapsychology. 
and uh, maybe even look at uh, the, the science of uh, ingrown toenails. Maybe that might help. We continue. Well, I think you think of it in terms of consciousness and not in terms of the extension of time. That's the first thing. Okay, let me <clears throat> let me back this up and set this up right. This uh, next segment um, it basically is is you know he says that he came to some conclu- some conclusions after this torturous process. And uh, the question on the table is, what are the uh, c- those conclusions regarding eternal life? With that in mind, let me play. Th- let me back this up and play this quote. Well, I think you think of it in terms of consciousness, and not in terms of the extension of time. That's the first thing. So apparently, we're supposed to think of eternal life in the form of consciousness. In, in huh? Where's he getting this from? Hmm. Uh, I think the human the human being. Uh, transcends the limits of time. Con- well, that's nice that you think that. Can you back it up with, with anything that we can trust? Constantly. Uh, you and I are quite capable of, of bringing experiences of our past into our present and almost reliving them and through memory. Yeah, we can right. sometimes even recreate the smells or the sounds or the... Uh, or we'll have our minds triggered by a song that we remember a particular association with many years ago, and it comes back with fullness. Yeah. We so, can anticipate a future in which we will not participate. We will not be partners in that future, so that you know we escape the boundaries of time constantly in our in our human life. Yada yada yada. This is just gobbledygook. I mean, the the, the sentence "blue sleeps faster than Tuesday" you know comes to mind here at this point. This is all pure, 100% off of basically speculation on his part. No definitive authoritative word of God regarding uh, what's going to happen in eternity. And he's trying to get hints uh, by looking in all the wrong places. Good night. I looked at the unfolding of life itself. Uh, I'm so glad you did that. Um, What does that mean? We now know from DNA evidence that that life is one continuous whole, and human beings are the only self-conscious part of that whole. But we're related by DNA evidence to the great apes, to the cabbages, and even to the plankton of the sea. It's not, it, we're not separate. It's all one unfolding process, and we are part of that unfolding process, and it's gone on. Really, how do you know we're part of that, quote, unfolding process? Uh, panentheism talk here, by the way. Um, what are we talking about here? Where, do, where are you getting these ideas from? It's like he's pulling them out of thin air. He's basically supposedly exegeting all of these different things to try to come up with a conclusion as to what's going to happen in eternity. But the one place he refuses to look for any definitive uh, talk on this is the Bible. Why? Because he doesn't believe the Bible. He absolutely attacks the scriptures, doesn't believe that it it has, you know, that, that it can speak definitively regarding because the Bible talks about judgment, hell, heaven. So he doesn't want to go there. Because that's too hard to explain away all that stuff. Instead, we're just going to ignore the scriptures and just go off lollygagging around the world and and look at all these different things and try to come up with a conclusion to get a hint as to what's going to happen in eternity. Long before we were here, and it'll go on long after we were we were departed. And are you still there? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I'm still here. And the uh, I, I looked at a number of things that that got me into that. I looked at the fact that life itself 
we went down to the Amazon rainforest and studied all kinds of life, plant life and animal life. Because I'm, I'm sure the Amazon rainforest has a lot to tell us about the afterlife and eternity. Life itself is motivated to survive. It's written into the very fabric of living things. Uh, we found palm trees. Who, who wrote that into the fabric of it? That would deliberately push roots out in a direction that pulled the tree into the sun. We looked at alliances between wasps and, mm -hmm. and ants, where both of them had concluded that they needed each other to survive, and so they formed a kind of treaty, uh, you know, almost like Henry Kissinger had gone down and negotiated between the wasp <laughs> and, the, and the ants. You do this for yeah, me, and I'll do time, that yeah. for you. Yeah. We found we found all sorts of connections. Now, now this drive to survive is not conscious in plants. It's not even conscious in animals. Animals don't have the conscious knowledge that they're alive, so they don't really know what it means to die. Now, that doesn't mean that when a predator is about to pounce, they will not react in fear. Mm -hmm. But they don't spend a lot of time thinking about that. Uh, that's not part of what it means to be an animal. But human beings do. And we, you know, we buy life insurance policies and we make our wills and all sorts of things as if we can control the future. We build monuments to ourselves hoping that some aspect of our memory will last. But it's self-conscious in human life. And so I began to probe the levels of consciousness. <laughs> wow. He, to determine what's going to happen after we die, He, uh, what a great service he's done for humanity. He's probed the levels, the different levels of consciousness to come up with the answer to what happens when we die and at the moment when human beings came into into this world and i date that moment only about two hundred and fifty thousand years ago i don't mean to say that we didn't have human-like creatures for as long as 4.4 .4 million years ago but the boundary of uh, notice he believes in evolution self-consciousness does not seem to have been crossed until about 250,000 years ago. Mm -hmm. And at that moment, we felt alone and separated. Conscious oh, really? How do you know that? How do you know at 250,000 years ago, we crossed the threshold of, quote, consciousness, and we felt alone and separated from the creation? How do you know what people felt 250,000 years ago? was within ourselves we saw the world as something outside ourselves that was a very different thing were you there were do you have anybody who's that old that can tell you based upon their personal experience of having been there about these feelings of being detached and, and alone again this is we're not even going to get to the whole thing today here folks this is just the intro and if we, uh, you know, we had another alternative, which I suggest we didn't know how to take, and that was when, when self-consciousness broke through, we saw ourselves as part of the whole. And really, we saw, how do you know that we saw ourselves as part of the whole? How do you know any of this stuff regarding the, the, the breakthrough of consciousness and what people felt once that occurred? Were you there? Did you find this out by using a Ouija board? Did you go and see a voodoo witch doctor? Did you uh, have somebody do past life regression therapy on you? How did you get this information? And, and instead of separated from the rest of nature. Mm -hmm. And I think we then went through a period of about 250,000 years where we 
tried to figure out how we live as self-conscious creatures apart from the whole, and I think that's where religion comes in. Mm-hmm. The subtitle of this book is Beyond Religion. I think we've got to get beyond religion to talk about these things. <laughs> so this is Bishop, uh, retired Bishop, uh, John Shelby Spong. Um, we're going to pause right there. We're going to actually pick this up, more of this up tomorrow. But that's the introduction. Him actually selling a book based upon, called Eternal Life, A New Vision Beyond Religion. And he's going to tell us all about eternal life from every other source except for the Bible. Huh. Interesting stuff. More in tomorrow's edition of Fighting for the Faith. You won't want to miss it. Stay tuned, as they say. All right, we are up on our second break, and when we come back, we're going to do a short segment entitled uh, Rob Bell's Velvet Atonement. And then our sermon review today is from Rob Bell at Mars Hill Bible Church there in Grand Rapids, Michigan. And it's all about the uh, the, the Lord's Prayer and forgiveness. And so we're going to be uh, doing that in next hour, right after the break here, so you don't want to miss that. And, of course, if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard so far on today's edition of Fighting for the Faith, email me. I do read them all. I don't get a chance to respond to them all, but I do read them all. You can email me. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there again, Pirate Christian. We will be right back. Relevance Schmelevance. We preach Christ crucified for our sins. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. This is the air I breathe. This is the air I breathe. I've had enough. Of this sissy, pansy, turning for the written music, you have the audacity to call worship. Men, put this entire girly praise band in the boo box. Let's wheel in the organ and get some real worship music underway. Ye be listening to Pirate Christian Radio. Are you tired of lousy service? When you need help with repairs around the house, Angie's List members will help you decide which service companies to trust and which ones to avoid. Kiplinger said Angie's List is a virtual backyard fence with talk about the dry cleaner, the drywaller, and everything in between. With Angie's List, you get access to great local reviews on their website, live support through their call center, the award-winning Angie's List magazine, and access to their complaint resolution team, as well as discounts from highly rated service companies. If you'd like to find out more about Angie's List and their unbiased reviews of service companies and doctors in your area, then call them Toll-free at 877-225-0478. Again, that's 877-225-0478. 
Call Angie's List today and you'll be done with lousy service forever. All right, we're back. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith. You fans of Rob Bell, pay attention. There's some problems there. We'll get to it here in just a second. last some second notes here for tomorrow's program. Yeah, I got to pay attention to where I left off here. All right. We're going to get back to uh, Bishop John Shelby Spong's interview on Doug Paget radio tomorrow. We will continue with that tomorrow. I, I kid you not. Th- there's so much gold here, uh, but that's just the preliminary start. I mean, he's going to tell us all about heaven without actually going to what the Bible says. Yeah, that uh, shouldn't surprise you, those of you who understand what liberalism is all about. All right, now, today's sermon review, by the way, is um, from Mars Hill Bible Church. It is from Rob Bell. But before we get to that, before we get to it, it is imperative. It's mucho importante uh, that, um, and it's on forgiveness, by the way, and uh, the Lord's Prayer. Before we do that sermon review, that we spend a little bit of time understanding something. Discernment, part of discernment is not taking people's words at face value, okay? Especially if uh, there's, um, how should we say, smoke, or you detect a wolf smell or a little bit of sulfur going on with their teaching. Just because somebody says Christ died for us doesn't mean that they're talking about penal substitutionary atonement and that they're talking about and referring to Salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, by Christ's work alone, and calling people to repentance and the forgiveness of sins. You have to listen carefully. Now, one of the things that's really super-de-duper popular nowadays is for people to attack systematic theology, as if somehow that that is out of, it's an outmoded uh, way of doing theology based upon modernism and you can't do it. Au contraire. Systematic theology has a place in theology, very much so. And these emerging guys talk about narrative theology and the narrative of Scripture and the arc of the narrative and all like, yeah, I, I get what you're talking about. What, why? Because they like telling stories and then twisting the conclusions. Those guys engage in systematic theology just as much as any Reformed or Reformation systematic theologue does. Okay, The thing is, is that what they're trying to do, the person who is attacking systematic theology, what they're trying to do is replace one systematic theology with another systematic theology. Don't think for a second that these emergent types and these postmodern types don't engage in systematic theology. They do. Okay, What they're really attacking is not systematic theology as a whole. They're attacking a very specific systematic, systematic theology that affirms the inerrancy of Scripture, that the God, that the the Bible is God's word, inspired word of God, that it not that it not the uh, liberal version that it contains it, uh, salvation by grace alone through faith alone by Christ's work alone. All that's gotta go, gotta go. We don't want to hear about repentance and the forgiveness of sins and that we're sinners. Yuck! Yeah, blech. you gotta get rid of that. Okay. But when they're attacking systematic theology, the dirty trick 
is that they're 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 just attacking a particular kind of systematic theology, and they are instead constructing over at the side a new systematic theology. But they won't call it that, and they won't teach it in such a way that you can actually clearly see it as a systematic theology. But you can piece it together if you're smart enough to, and pay close attention to do so. That being the case, this next segment entitled uh, Rob Bell's Velvet Atonement, okay, this is from Movement 6 of the book Velvet Elvis. And uh, Movement 6 um, is entitled New. And um, you listen very carefully. And here's the reason why. One of the reasons why Rob Bell is so dangerous is not because everything he spews is heresy. No, no, that's never how it works with heresy. A lot of what you are going to hear, you're going to be able to say, well, I, I believe that. I, I can say amen to that, and you will be able to. But what you're going to be listening for is what's missing. Harder to do. But if you know systematic theology you will realize there is a very critical, important doctrine missing in what you're about to hear Rob Bell talk about as, as it pertains to the atonement and how the atonement is applied to humanity. Okay, It's not just the atonement, it's the application of the atonement. Okay, See if you can spot it. Again, on the, on the discernment scale, clearly a 9 to a 9.5 on difficulty. Here we go. Here is Rob Bell. Movement 6, new. I was having lunch with a guy who was telling me about a struggle he's been having for a while. He said he knew he was a sinner and that he'd fallen and that he would keep committing this one sin and he knew he was going to keep committing this one sin because he was a sinner and his nature was evil and there was nothing he could do about it because of what a sinner he was. Do I have to go on? I was so depressed I wanted to bang my head on the table. His question was basically, why do I struggle like this? And all that was running through my head during his questions was that his system was perfectly designed to achieve the results he was getting. He's convinced he's a sinner. He's convinced he's going to sin. He has no hope against sin. He believes his basic nature is sin, and then he wonders why he keeps sinning. What is he attacking? What is he attacking? Doctrine of original sin, by the way. We continue. And he's doing it by building a very, very subtle straw man. Listen carefully. Keep sinning. And what was so startling to me is that he said he had just become a Christian. By the way, he said it was a system, his system. Does the scripture teach that you're a sinner? Do the scriptures teach that you are by nature a sinner, a rebel sinner? The apostle Paul in Romans chapter 7, was he describing his wrestling with sin and his sinful nature? Notice that's not brought up here, but we continue. Christian. It seemed to me that becoming a Christian had given him all sorts of new things to feel guilty about. I wondered if becoming a Christian had made his life not better, but actually worse. And then a little while later, I had a similar experience. I was listening to a pastor speak, and his point was that people weren't reading their Bibles enough and weren't praying enough and weren't being spiritual enough. If people would just do more, basically read their Bibles more and pray more and be more spiritual, basically just more mores, then God would be happy with them. I felt terrible. 
What was the okay? Notice what he's talking about here. Okay, he's uh, he may actually be correctly identifying somebody who is a law, law, law preacher, no gospel, right? Do this, do this, more, 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 more. It, it, this is performance-based legalistic pietism that he's describing, not biblical Christianity. We continue. What was the point of even trying? It's not that praying and reading the Bible are bad. It's just that I wanted to do them less and less the more he talked. But it wasn't so much what he was saying as it was the place he was coming from. The basic premise seemed to be we are bad and don't do enough. And if we are made to feel guilty enough about it, then we will change our behavior. That's the, uh, did you hear that? We're bad. If we're made to feel guilty enough, we'll change our behavior. What's missing? Repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name by his death on the cross. Repentance and faith. Repentance and the forgiveness of sins. Let's see what he does with this. I don't think this is what Jesus had in mind. His greatest anger was reserved for religious leaders who weighed people down with guilt and shame. He says to a group of Bible scholars and teachers, you experts in the law, woe to you because you load people down with burdens they can hardly carry. And you yourselves will not lift one finger to help them. A little while later, he calls them sons of hell. He goes on to say that it is possible for religious leaders to actually get in the way of people entering into the life of God. Correct. He's right here. There's a lot you're going to say, yeah, this is right. So what is the message? I mean, how should people feel about themselves? Have you ever heard a Christian say, I'm just a sinner? I can't find one place in the teachings of Jesus, or the Bible for that matter, where we are to identify ourselves first and foremost as sinners. Now, this doesn't mean that we don't sin. That's obvious. In the book of James, it's written like this. We all stumble in many ways. Once again, the greatest truth of the story of Adam and Eve isn't that it happened. Listen carefully. Watch the liberal switch here. The greatest truth of Adam and Eve isn't that it happened. It, uh, who cares if it's a real story? It doesn't matter if it's a real story. It's not the important that it happened. Really. But that it happens. We all make choices to live outside of how God created us to live. We have all come up short. And that's sinning. And that's what we do by nature. The first Christians insisted that when we became Christians, a profound change occurs in our fundamental identity. Now, this section, he's right here. Listen carefully. This is you, you, what some of the stuff he's going to say here is profound. And it's right. Identity in who we are at the core of our being in who we are first and foremost before we are anything else in our awareness of ourselves. The first Christians were convinced that in identifying with Jesus' death on the cross, something within us dies. Weird language there. Dies. They called this person who died the old man or the old woman, the person we were before we had a spiritual birth. Now, this idea of death and rebirth is not a new idea. It's been around in almost every religious tradition since people first started talking about these things. But the first Christians believed that this idea had been lived out in a new and unique way in Jesus' death and resurrection. Paul put it like this in the book of Colossians, For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. So this old nature of mine, the one that was constantly pulling me down and causing me to live in ways I wasn't created to live, has died. 
Okay, now I'm going to point something out here. You got to pay close attention. This part of discernment is to watch uh, what I would almost call doctrinal hypocrisy. He attacks the doctrine of original sin, and then right here he tacitly affirms the doctrine of original sin by talking about how our old nature died. Interesting, isn't it? We continue. Died. And no matter how many times that old nature raises its ugly head and pretends to be alive, it is dead. Yet that old nature is sinful by nature. (laughs) And not only did that old person die, but I have been given a new nature. Again, Paul writes in Colossians, you have been raised with Christ. I have this new life, this new identity that's been given to me. I've taken on the identity of Christ. Paul continues, you used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived. These first Christians kept insisting that something so transformational was happening in the lives of followers of Jesus that they could refer to their old lives as the life we once lived. Great point. That's why when I talk about sanctification, I say you do what you do because you are what you are. This is a good point. Watch where he goes with it, though, here. Because right now, this isn't, he's applying this changed life and this new identity to Christians. Watch what happens. Lived. It is not that we are perfect now or that we will never have to struggle or that the old person won't come back from time to time. It's that this new way of life involves a constant, conscious decision to keep dying to the old so that we can live in the new. Paul describes... Okay, now notice that that's sanctification by works, but I digress. We continue. Paul describes it as Christ being our lives. Paul goes so far as to insist in another letter that if we are having this kind of transforming experience with Christ in which we're taking on a new identity, we are literally now a new creation. No, actually, Paul says if you are in Christ, you are a new creation. You gotta be careful here, okay? You have a transformational experience. By the way, results may vary on that. Because you are in Christ, if you've trust, if you trust in Christ, if through the gift of the preaching of law and gospel, you've been given repentance and the forgiveness of sins, you are in Christ. And I would even point this out. Go back and look at the, the context here that in Colossians, It's specifically referring to baptism. But we continue. Creation. I am being remade. I am not who I was. I am a new creation. I am in Christ. When God looks at me, God sees Christ because I'm in him. God's view of me is Christ, and Christ is perfect. This is why Paul goes on to say, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved. Did you catch that word in the middle? Holy. Not going to be holy someday. Not, wouldn't it be nice if you were holy, but instead you're a mess, but holy. Holy means pure, without blemish, unstained. Yeah, by the way, this involves the imputed righteousness of Christ. That's how we are holy. Because Christ's perfect righteousness is imputed to us, as if we're the ones who lived it. Stained. In these passages, we're being told who we are now. As Christians, right? The issue then isn't my beating myself up over all the things I am not doing or the things I am doing poorly. The issue is my learning who this person is, who God keeps insisting I already am. This is where 
you got to pay close attention. little slippage here going on here. I am a new creation in Christ. This is for Christians at this point, speaking to Christians. Notice these words from the letter to the Philippians. Let us live up to what we have already attained. There is this person who we already are in God's eyes. And we are learning to live like it's true. Okay, we've got some problems here. Are you detecting this? We continue. It's true. This is an issue of identity. It's letting what God says about us shape what we believe about ourselves. Sounds like positive affirmations to me. Selves. This is why shame has no place whatsoever in the Christian experience. It is really shame has no, no place whatsoever in the Christian experience. I, I'm reminded of the story of that. Uh, was it Simon the sorcerer? Or who was that guy who tried to buy the gift of the Holy Spirit from the Apostle Peter? He was a sorcerer or a magician, and he had he had already come to faith. And Peter sure did shame him. Basically, you know, told him that he has no part in Christ whatsoever and that, and to repent and maybe God would forgive him. It is simply against all that Jesus is for. As the writer of the Romans put it, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, listen, I'm telling you. Everything so far, you know, it, there's there's some slippage going on here. He's playing some word games here. But keep in mind, he just said, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation for those who trust. Those who through the preaching of law and gospel have repented and trust in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. We continue. Jesus. None, no shame, no list of what is being held against us, no record of wrongs. It has simply been done away with. It no, is no, actually, it's not that it's simply been done away with. It, wrong. No, it hasn't simply been done away with. It's It's been atoned for by Christ. Our sins have been atoned for. God's wrath has been propitiated. The debt we owe to God has been paid. We've been redeemed. It's not that it's simply done away with. No, where's the blood of Christ? And yeah, uh huh. It is no longer an issue. Bringing it up is pointless. Beating myself up is pointless. Beating others up about who and what they are not then is going the wrong direction. It is working against the purposes of God. God is not interested in shaming people. God wants people to see who they really are. Now, this is where the dirty, the, the dirty stuff happens. He's taking passages that are specific to Christians, and now he's slowly but surely opening this up in such a way that it's not only being applied to Christians, it's falsely being applied to unbelievers. Now, watch carefully, okay? It's not that God is interested. You know, God wants people to see who they really are. Are. Let us live up to what we have already attained. I am not who I was. You are not who you were. 
old person going away, new person here now, reborn, rebirth, remade, reconciled, renewed. Jesus put it this way, you are in me and I am in you. So when the first Christians went all over the Roman Empire telling people the Jesus message, they spent most of their time explaining who people are from God's perspective. Did you catch that? Let me read it. So when the first Christians went all over the Roman Empire telling people the Jesus message, they went most they spent most of their time explaining who people are from God's perspective. Wrong. That's a lie. What has he done here? Dirty little thing that he's done. He's taken language that is specific to Christians and now he's rewriting the book of Acts to exclude something. He's excluding the preaching of repentance and the forgiveness of sins. What's missing here is a doctrine, a doctrine that pertains to conversion and regeneration through the preaching of the gospel. That's This is where the sleight of hand takes place. So when the first Christians went all over the Roman Empire telling people the Jesus message, they spent most of their time explaining who people are from God's perspective. No, they went around telling people to repent and trust in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins, to repent of worshiping false idols, to repent of their sins and trust in Christ and receive the forgiveness of sins won by him. What did Jesus say to do? Luke 24 that repentance and the forgiveness of sins will be proclaimed in his name to all nations. What did the apostles do? They went out and proclaimed repentance and the forgiveness of sins. Not that Jesus has taken care of all of this, wiped it all. You're a new people. Everybody everywhere, there's a new person in you. And let me tell you who you are from God's perspective. No, because anybody who doesn't trust in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins is still under God's wrath. They are not a new creation in Christ. What what Rob Bell is doing here, he's sneaking in a form of universalism. We continue. Perspective, who we already are. They insisted that people can live a new life, counting themselves dead to sin, but alive to God. No, they did not. That is not the gospel. They insisted, the the, the first Christians insisted that people can live a new life, counting the, ourselves dead to sin, but alive to God. No, they were tr- called to repentance and trust in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. That's not the gospel. We continue. God, when we stumble and fall back into old patterns, we call them what they are. Old patterns, old ways, old habits of the old person, because something new is happening inside of us. Jesus said that as this new reality takes over our hearts and lives and minds and actions, we are crossing over from death to life. No, we're, we cross over from death to life when we trust in Christ for the forgiveness of our sins, not when we allow this new reality to take over our hearts and lives and minds and actions. To life. He called this new kind of life eternal life. For Jesus, eternal life wasn't a state of being for the future that we would enter into somewhere else. It is a quality of life that starts now. Eternal life, then, is a certain kind of life I am living more and more now and will go on forever. I'm living more and more in connection with God, and I'll live connected with God forever. This has huge implications for when I do stumble, when I sin, and when the old person comes back from the dead for a few moments. I admit it. I confess it. I thank God that I am forgiven. I make amends with anyone who has been affected by my actions. 
and then I move on. Not because sin isn't serious, but because I am taking seriously who God says I am. The point isn't my failure. It is God's success in remaking me into the person he originally intended me to be. Where's the cross? Where's repentance? Where's regeneration? Where's conversion? Where's the forgiveness of sins? It's all missing here. God's strength, not mine. God's power, not mine. So what does this mean for the Christian life? To begin, Christians are people learning who they are in Christ. We're being taught about our new identity. Do you see how deeply this affects the life of a community? I heard a teacher say that if people were taught more about who they are, they wouldn't have to be told what to do. It would come naturally. When we see religious communities spending most of their time trying to convince people not to sin, we are seeing a community that has missed the point. The point isn't sin management. The point is who we are now. Often communities of believers in the New Testament are identified as saints. The word saints is a translation of the Greek word hagias, which means holy or set apart ones. Those who are in Christ. Not because of what they have done, but because of what God has done. There is nothing we can do and there's nothing we could ever have done to earn God's favor. We already have it. Jesus tells a parable. Right. But notice how he applied that to the whole world, not just to Christians. Slippery, slippery, slippery. We continue. Again, there's some good stuff in here, and it's, it's the problem is, is the good stuff is coding the bad. There's a parable about a young son who leaves home, hits bottom, and returns in shame. His father sees him from far off, runs to him, embraces him, and announces a party in honor of his homecoming. In this story, God is the God who stands in the driveway waiting for his kids to come home. So the party starts and everybody is celebrating and the older brother comes in from the field mad. He wants to know why his brother gets a party and he doesn't. The parable ends with the father telling the older son, You are always with me and everything I have is yours. The father wants the older son to know that everything he wants he has always had. There is nothing he could ever do to earn it. The elder son's problem isn't that he doesn't have anything. It's that he has had it all along, but refused to trust that it was really true. We cannot earn what we have always had. What we can do is trust that what God keeps insisting is true about us is actually true. Let's take this farther. As one writer puts it, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were unable to do anything about our condition, while we were helpless, while we were unaware of just how bad the situation was, Jesus died. And when Jesus died on the cross, he died for everybody, everybody, everywhere, every tribe, every nation, every tongue, every people group. And Jesus said that when he was lifted up, he would draw all people to himself, all people everywhere. Everybody sins on the cross with Jesus. So this reality, this forgiveness, this reconciliation is true for everybody. Paul insisted that when Jesus died on the cross, he was reconciling all things in heaven and on earth to God. All things everywhere. Okay, notice, I agree with him regarding the fact that Christ died for the sins of the world. This reality, then, isn't something we make true about ourselves by doing something. It is already true. Our choice is to live in this new reality or cling to a reality of our own making. No, that's not the gospel. Okay. What did you see? See what's going on? 
this is where it this is where he's slipping in this universalism okay jesus dies for everybody and everybody therefore already has this new self this new reality about them and we need to make a choice to either live in this new reality or cling to a reality of our own making wrong that is not the preaching of the christian gospel that is not what the scriptures teach that everybody already has this new thing already about them that they're already a new creation in christ no the ones who are a new creation in christ are those who've repented trusted in christ i would even say receive the gift of baptism for in our baptisms we are buried with christ and raised with christ and all of the promises associated with baptism now, am I saying that you have to be baptized to be saved? No, that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is, is that those that identity is not for the world. It's for those who believe. And what Rob Bell here has done is taken the atonement and applied it in such a way that apparently that there's a new reality about everybody and you need to make a choice to either live in the new reality or, or cling to the old one. That's not not the Christian gospel. Making. God is retelling each of our stories in Jesus. All the bad parts and ugly parts and the parts we want to pretend never happened are redeemed. They seemed pointless and they were painful at the time, but God retells our story and they become the moments when God's grace is most on display. We find ourselves asking, am I really forgiven of that? The fact that we are loved and accepted and forgiven in spite of everything we have done is simply too good to be true. Our choice becomes this. We can trust his retelling of the story, or we can trust our telling of the story. It is a choice we make every day about the reality we are going to live in. Where in the scriptures does it teach that salvation is learning to live in a new reality? And that reality is already for everybody everywhere. It isn't. This is not the biblical Christian doctrine of the atonement nor of conversion nor of regeneration this is something completely completely different now that forms the basis then with this information and this knowledge you've heard him talk about the cross you've heard him talk about forgiveness and its application completely disjointed from god's word the reason I did that is because at the tail end of the sermon that we're going to listen to today from Rob Bell, he's going to talk about the cross and forgiveness and what Jesus did. But you have to know what he means. He doesn't mean what we read in the scriptures. He means living, making a decision to live in the new reality that everybody already has in Christ, which is not what the Bible teaches, by the way, at all. So with that, it is time to dive into our sermon review, which requires us to play our sermon review music. The good, the bad, the ugly, we review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We are an equal opportunity sermon review service, if you would. Comparing what people are saying in their sermons, what pastors are saying in their sermons, and comparing it to the Word of God. Are they treat are they preaching and proclaiming repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus name calling men to repent and trust in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins 
or are they just making stuff up, twisting God's word, preaching pipe dreams, or preaching to scratch itching ears? That's what we do here. A lot of what we do requires us to also preach sound biblical doctrine ourselves. So part of this exercise that we go through today, or in every sermon review if you would, allows us to teach and proclaim sound biblical doctrine and to rebuke those who do not teach it. It is a politically incorrect thing to do, but good news is I do not subscribe to or buy into politically correct language rules. I did not sign the document saying that I would abide by them, therefore I am exempt from them and will not kowtow to them. As a result of it, this segment of Fighting for the Faith is not for the faint-hearted. It will offend people because you will see and hear sacred cows that you might hold on to and believe in being brutally and mercilessly slaughtered by me during the sermon review here at Fighting for the Faith. And you might even hear me enjoying slaughtering your sacred cow. Believe me when I tell you, slaughtering sacred cows is for your good. With that, we dive into our sermon today. Let me kill the music here. Our sermon is by Rob Bell of Mars Hill Bible Church in Grand Rapids, Michigan. The name of the sermon is Forgiveness, and it is on the... uh, it's from the Sermon on the Mount, and it's on the uh, the Lord's Prayer. We listen to Rob Bell. Good morning. <laughs> I want to invite you to turn to the book of Matthew, chapter 6. And I would like to talk for one moment about the difference between boys and girls. 9 a.m., girl, note cards, reads them. Begins with theological lessons learned about redemption and liberation. 11 a.m. Boy, four square, and Mentos and Pop. And secretly, every dude in the room is like, yep. That's just how it goes. Hey, all the, fifth, all the fifth and sixth graders, why don't you just stand up on your chair right now and make some noise so we know where exactly you're located. Let's go. Where are you? Where are you? All right. Great. Good. Good. All right. Beautiful. You can stay standing if you want. I didn't say sit down. But you, never mind. Okay. <laughs> and I want to invite you again to Christmas Eve service this, uh, well, Christmas Eve. And um, our goal is that when you leave, you say to those you came with, now that was a Christmas Eve service. So get your sweater on, as we like to say. Um, and so that's coming up. And so let's jump into Matthew 6. We've been studying through the Sermon on the Mount. And it's taking about nine months, which is like cramming it in, driving me crazy how fast we're moving. And actually, there's a couple... One of the things when we have guest teachers is they, they're given a passage of Scripture and where you've said, listen, this, this verse to this verse is what we'd like you to cover. And, and some do and some don't. Um, so we're aware of that. And if you said to yourself, hey, wait, we skipped, we skipped that section, we skipped that section, um, maybe what we're talking about doing is just that um, when the whole thing is over... Or uh, like in the summer, we may go back and hit the spots that we missed and um, 
we have all sorts of interesting ideas that we will lay out for you at some point. Um, because for a lot of you, you're saying things like, this is opening up all sorts of things. This is opening up all sorts of questions. This is taking us so much farther um, than we'd expected. And so we, we're uh, hearing all that sort of thing. And so all sorts of great minds are on it. And um, so if you have had that thought, like, wait, I think we kind of skipped a couple of verses there. We will hit them at some point in the next decade. Now, Matthew chapter 6, Jesus is talking about uh, prayer. And we covered how one of the things he does is he covers the destructive things that get in the way of life with God and also good things that can get in the way of life with God. Generosity and charity and fasting and things that when they're done with a sort of twisted heart, they can work against our life with God. And then he says this. uh, So, verse 7, Matthew 6, when you pray... Do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. This then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. And then in a moment we'll continue working through the prayer. Um, When you pray, don't babble on like the pagans who think that they're going to be heard because they talk a lot. But uh, just say... Like, remember that God knows what you need before you even ask it. So just say, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Now, when he uses the word babbling, this is what the word is like in the original Greek language. It's the word batalogeo. It comes from the word batos, which means stammer, and logos, which means word batalogeo. So when you pray, don't batalogeo. And then, secondly, the original Greek word for much words is the word polus, much, and attached to the word logos word, and it's polologia which rhymes with diarrhea, and you'd be interested to know how many scholars make this connection between the two words, essentially saying that talking too much is a bit like diarrhea of the mouth. Thank you for that. So, so uh, and the polu has a sort of, almost sounds like pollution, or um, when you pray, don't botologia or polologia. No, no need, no need. When you pray, just say, our Father in heaven. Hallowed be thy name. Now, I assume, hopefully if you've been here a while by now, when you read, do not babble like the pagans, I assume that you immediately are asking, what does he mean? Obviously, Jesus is referring to something. And if we knew what that was, when his audience heard, do not babble like the pagans, the assumption is that they must have had something that they would have known that he would be referring to that would then help make clear what he was saying. So let me show you a few prayers or a few ways of praying that his audience would have been familiar with or would have heard or known. Here is um, an ancient Egyptian prayer to Amun-Ra, one of the gods of Egypt. Most of the gods of Egypt have some sort of relationship with the sun. Hail to thee, Amun-Ra, Lord of the thrones of the earth, the oldest existence, ancient of heaven, supporter of all things, chief of the gods, Lord of truth, father of the gods, maker of men and beasts and herbs. (laughs) The god of cilantro. (laughs) Such an interesting thing. Chief of the gods, Lord of truth, father of gods, maker of men and beasts and herbs, maker of all things above and below, Lord of wisdom, Lord of mercy, most loving opener of every eye. And this is the opener. This is just addressing the God. Now, when you address Amun-Ra, how do you know when you've said enough names that Amun-Ra is like, oh, I guess you're talking to me? (laughs) Is there a voice from the heavens that just says, 
Are you talking to me? Be more specific. Because I'm the chief of the gods and the beast of herbs, but am I the support of all things or the Lord of truth or the maker of all? On and on and on and on. Is this what it takes to get God's attention? You, you have to just list all of the possible titles. Is there a whole prayer where you simply say to Amun-Ra, listen, last time I talked to you, I pretty much think I got all of your names in, but I may have missed a few, so really sorry about that. God of heaven and earth and chief of the herbs and biscuits. Um, how, how does that work? Number two, this is from uh, an Akkadian prayer to the moon god. And this one, this, this sucker cooks right here. Get ready. You're going to get caught up in the spirit of moon god of Akkadia right here. Father Nana, Lord Anshar, hero of the gods. Father Nana, great Lord, a new hero of the gods. Father Nana, Lord Seen, hero of the gods. Father Nana, Lord of Ur, hero of the gods. Father Nana, Lord of Egishiguru, hero of the gods. Father Nana, Lord of the Shining Crown, Hero of the Gods. Father Nana, who is grandly perfected in kingship, Hero of the Gods. Father Nana, who solemnly advances in garments of princeliness, Hero of the Gods. Ferocious bull, whose horn is thick, whose legs are perfected. <laughs> Father Nana's going, come on, come on, come on, get to the thick horn part, okay? Because that's what I love. You see, now this would be a standard way of addressing the gods. How many times do you have to say, Father Nana, and do you always have to mention the perfect legs? <laughs> Are other gods not having perfect legs? And this is a distinction of Father Nana, who's like, you haven't noticed my calves, I'm not listening. <laughs> How does this work? Or from 1 Kings 18, when Elijah, uh, when there's a prophet has this confrontation with the prophets of Baal. Then they called on the name of Baal, the prophets did, from morning till noon. So here we have prayer, what, four, five, six hours. And Jesus' listeners, they would have known this story. This was a popular story. So from morning till noon, they called on their God, Baal, answer us, they shouted. So five to six hours, let's say, of shouting. But there was no response. No one answered. So they danced around the altar. So step one, call out to the God. If you get five or six hours in, it doesn't appear everybody's listening, start dancing. So then you have dancing. Then a little while later, they shouted louder. So if you've been talking for five or six hours and don't feel like you're getting through, and then you begin dancing, it doesn't seem like it's working, then just shout louder. It's like when you're in a foreign country and it doesn't think that probably they know what you're saying, just say it louder. Always helps. No, no, it's awful. It doesn't work. They shouted louder and slashed themselves with swords and spears. How do you get God's attention? Well, you just start calling on the God's name for five or six hours. If that doesn't work, dance. If that doesn't work, shout. If that doesn't work, physically harm yourself as a way of saying to the God, listen, I'm ready to shed my own blood to get your attention. If that doesn't work, as was their custom, until their blood flowed, midday passed, and they continued their frantic prophesying. If you begin slicing yourself to get the attention of the divine and that doesn't work, then you end up in a sort of frantic prophesying until the time for the evening sacrifice, in which you offer something of value in order to say again to the God, maybe this will get your attention. If we give something really valuable and sacrifice it, give it away, put it up in smoke and fire, maybe then that will get the attention of the gods. There is a wound deep in the bones of humanity, a fear and anxiety, a worry. And what you see in these 
is a primal question. Are the gods listening? Number one. And number two, are the gods angry? Have I offended somebody? Is somebody on a cloud somewhere upset? And so what you see in each of these prayers is a base level of terror. Someone, somewhere, is ticked. And so i got to dance, shout, prophesy, offer something, repeat their name, talk about their thick horn. I want to point this out. Um, where, do they, where do people get this idea that they've offended the gods? Well, I think one very plausible explanation would be to look at the fact that you have, throughout human history, natural disasters, terrible weather events, um, plagues, famine, disease. Bad things happen to everybody. Death abounds. Deep down, Scripture makes it clear that we have the law of God written on our heart. We have an understanding that things are not right and bad things happen to people. And there's this thing to try to appease the gods. Now, that being said, do we read in Scripture of God's wrath? We'll answer that question just a little bit. Let's let Rob Bell continue to spin this thing out. What do I have to do to get rid of that primal, deep-in-the-bones anxiety that no one's listening, and if they are, they're angry, and I've got to do something to get them on my good side? Is this a wound that was only present back then? No. No. Still here. Still here. Still here. The questions remain in our culture to this day. We may be so much less primitive and more advanced. And yet, the same questions still linger. You can even find Christian communities where this same primitive, primal anxiety exists. Because here is the truth. We shape our gods, and then our gods shape us. If your god is violent... Okay, listen really carefully to this next part. Okay? Listen really carefully. If your god is violent, what do you think he's going to say at this point? I wonder what he would say about the, the god who reveals himself in the book of Isaiah. We continue... If your God punishes and banishes and torments, if your God is a God who gets out the sword and just starts swinging, if your God is violent, we shape our gods and then our gods shape us. It becomes much easier to justify your own violence if your God is violent. Well. Did you hear that? That's liberal speak, by the way. I mean, just plain and simple. If your God is violent, you can just use that to justify violence in your own life. Huh. Isaiah chapter 63, verse 3. 
God speaking, I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood splattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. For the day of vengeance was in my heart, and my year of redemption had come. I looked up, I looked, but there was no one to help. I was appalled, but there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought me salvation, and my wrath upheld me. I trampled down the peoples in my anger. I made them drunk in my wrath, and I poured out their lifeblood on the earth. I wonder what Rob Bell would do with that passage. We continue. This is what my God is like. If your God is a petty, condemning, judging, pushing people to the edges, has all sorts of holiness codes, and these people are in, and these people are out, and these people are... Like uh, the Ten Commandments, and how about these people are in, and these people are out, uh, depart from me, you workers of iniquity, I never knew you, Jesus speaking, by the way. Or, um, you know, to the sheep, or to the goats, he says, uh, you know, that they go off to eternal punishment. Notice that he's basically in the sermon by going off on this tangent that he's on. He's maligning and impugning and demeaning the God, the one true God who has revealed himself in the scriptures. And basically, basically claiming that if you believe that God has moral codes and he excludes people and sends them to hell and is petty and is angry and wrathful and violent... He's saying that that's idolatry. It's an idol that you've made up. No, it's not. That's the God who has revealed himself in the scriptures. Let me read to you this wonderful gospel passage and see if uh, if Rob Bell could make heads or tails of it. Of course he won't. Uh, John chapter 3, verse 36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Isn't that great news? It continues. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Rob Bell, in this sermon, is calling the God of the Bible, as he has revealed himself, he's calling him an idol, claiming that he's a false god of our own creation. Are disgusting and these people are chosen. If your God is that sort of endlessly separating people, then it becomes much easier to justify a way of life in which they are out and they are in and they're with us and they're bad and evil and wrong and, and all that. When your God is like that, then you can justify being like that. Are you with me? We shape our gods and then our gods shape us. And then uh, this one right here. This uh, prayer, some of you I know have been reading the Igivine type tablets from the 3rd century B.C. in the Umbrian alphabet lately. There's a new song. Um, it's not Party in the U.S., Party in the Umbrian alphabet, I think is what it's called. Hey, what can I say? Um, no, no. Notice, and this, tablet one, Jupiter Grabovius. By the way, those of you expecting a child, looking for names. Just saying. Jupiter Grabovius, if on the Fissian Mount fire has arisen, or if in the nation of Eguvium the ode preparations have been omitted, let it be as if they have been made. Jupiter Grabovius, if in your sacrifice there has been any flaw, any defect, any ritual violation, any fraud, any error, if in your sacrifice there is a flaw, either seen or unseen, 
How does the third century Iguvine tablet prayer to Jupiter Grabovius begin? It begins with a base level of terror, fear, and paranoia. The last time, Jupiter Grabovius, we came and worshipped you. I have a deep-seated fear that maybe we offended you. Maybe there was some small defect or detail that we didn't get right. And there is a sort of terror that you're going to judge us for that. So please, 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 if there's anything there, please, please, please look over it. Please forgive us. Please don't hold it against us. Please, please don't, don't. This is a perfect picture of the sort of primal anxiety God's ticked. There's a God, and I'm not quite sure where I stand with the gods. I think they might be angry. They might not be. I might have done something last time that I didn't get it quite right. And into all of this, Jesus says, when you pray... Uh, what? Whoa, wait a second. Oh, man. Notice the universal application here. To everybody everywhere in the world, no, no, don't fear that you've upset the gods. When you pray, just pray this way. Sleight of hand, complete category shift here. Our Father in heaven, holy is your name. And when you pray, Jesus says, remember that this God's posture towards you is one of favor, pleasure, blessing, and generosity. This God, Jesus says, wants to give you what you need. True and not true. Again, John chapter 3, verse 36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Gospel, good news. God has a positive posture towards you. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Stays on The wrath of God remains on him. This verse completely contradicts how Rob Bell is applying these, this, uh, the Lord's Prayer here. He's not dealing in the category of believer, unbeliever, repentant sinner trusting in Christ, and rebel sinner uh, disobeying God. That cat- those categories are gone which are biblical categories. Instead, well, just, well, no, don't worry. You, you all have this fear that God is, is angry towards you and that you've ticked the gods off. No, no, no. Just read the Lord's Prayer. It encourages us to see God as our Heavenly Father. What's missing? The doctrine of regeneration and conversion is missing. Belief and trust and faith in Christ is missing. We continue. So when you come to this God whose fundamental posture towards you is one of generosity, pleasure, and provision, favor, and blessing, when you come to this God, come with that awareness and simply say, Oh, our Father in heaven, holy is your name. This prayer of Jesus is a groundbreaking moment in the evolution of religion. This is an absolutely revolutionary idea. No, no, no. The evolution of religion? No, no, no. All that other stuff about being paranoid and terrified and that sort of anxiety that's been there. No, 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 no. This God is on your side. So just come and say, you got everything I need. Let's talk. My version of the prayer. Are you with me? 
We shape our gods and then our gods shape us. Imagine if this was your conception of the divine. That God knows what I need before I ask God. That God is holy. And I don't have to go on and on and on about how thick this God's horn is. I don't have to talk about herbs. I can come to this God knowing that this God is pleasurably disposed towards me. And I can simply say, Our Father in heaven, holy be your name. This is an absolutely radical new idea in human history. This prayer in just a couple of lines, Jesus essentially says, you know the babbling. You know that fear and that worry. You know that terror of having to repeat all of the different names. Terrified you might have left one out. You know all that. No, 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 no. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Uh, Something to keep in mind who was Jesus addressing at the Sermon on the Mount? Was he addressing a pagan audience or a Jewish audience? Answer, Jewish audience. And Jesus is making a contradistinction to how the pagans pray. Important little factoid kind of left out here. In the evolution of religion, this is an absolutely massive step forward. This is groundbreaking. This is new territory. This is revolutionary. This is a conception of the gods, the God, that simply hadn't been articulated this cleanly, beautifully, brilliantly like this. And then Jesus says, so when you pray, here's the way to pray. Here's how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Verse 10. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we've also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Or you could say deliver us from evil or guide us away from the destructive things. That's the prayer. Jesus says just pray like this. Now. A couple of things going on here. First off, this entire prayer in the Greek language is 57 words. What Jesus does in the very beginning is he covers several different dimensions. In the beginning, he acknowledges a spiritual realm. For many of us raised in the modern American educational system, our culture was birthed out of essentially a European enlightenment of the past 200 years. What we have been raised in, it's the water that our culture swims in is that the scientific method determines what is real. And so what is real is that which you can access with your five senses. Can you measure it in a lab? Can you see it, taste it, touch it, smell it? Can, Can you access it in the material realm? Otherwise, it's probably not real. So all of the sort of spirit, whatever, that's this, that which you can measure in a lab, that which you can prove scientifically, that materially can be empirically shown that exists the problem is we know that there's more to life than just what you can access with your five senses are you with me so we've been raised in this culture that essentially has said this is all there is and yet we we know that there's more so jesus okay notice what that is right there that little this little uh tirade that he's on right now 
really is a slap against modernist thinking. Okay? I like the postmodern sensibilities here. In this particular case, postmodernism is right. There's more than what we just see. There's more than meets the eye or what can be tested in a test tube in a laboratory. Begins his prayer. Our Father, holy is your name. The prayer begins with an acknowledgement that there is a vast expanse beyond, a dimension within just the physical that we can taste, touch, and measure with a test tube in a lab. Uh, isn't that kind of missing the point there, Rob, though? Um, isn't the opening segment of the Lord's Prayer all about our Father who is in heaven? Holy is his name. It, it's about the Father. Not about this other thing. It's about God, the Father. <clears throat> Time for a little catechism time here at Fighting for the Faith. I'm going to be reading uh, by way of uh, just counter instruction, if you would, um, Luther's explanation from his small catechism on the Lord's Prayer. I, I will do this uh, beginning at the introduction. The Lord's Prayer begins, Our Father who art in heaven. What does this mean? With these words, God tenderly invites us to believe that he is our true father and that we are his true children, so that with all boldness and confidence, we may ask him as dear children ask their dear father. Now, by the way, does Luther think that this is, uh, that this means that everybody, regardless of their, of whether or not they trust in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins, can do such a thing? No. We continue. Hallowed be your name. What does this mean? Well, God's name is certainly holy in itself, but we pray in this petition that it may be kept holy among us also. Now, how is God's name kept holy? Well, God's name is kept holy when the word of God is taught in its truth and purity and when we, as the children of God, also lead holy lives according to it. Help us to do this, dear Father in heaven. But, hang on a second here, i got to flip the page. But anyone who teaches or lives contrary to God's word profanes the name of God among us. Lord, protect us from this heavenly Father. Second petition. Your kingdom come. Now, what does this mean? The kingdom of God certainly comes by itself without our prayer, but we pray in this petition that it may come to us also. So how does God's kingdom come? Well, God's kingdom comes when our heavenly father gives us his Holy Spirit so that by his grace, we believe his holy word and lead godly lives here in time and there in eternity. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, what does this mean? The good and gracious will of God is done even without our prayer, but we pray in this petition that it may be done among us also. So how is God's will done? God's will is done when he breaks and hinders every evil plan and purpose of the devil, the world and our sinful nature, which does not want us to hallow God's name or to let his kingdom come. And when he strengthens and keeps us firm in his word and faith until we die, this is his good and gracious will. 
Give us this day our daily bread. Well, what does this mean? Well, God certainly gives daily bread to everyone without our prayers, even to all evil people. But we pray in this petition that God would lead us to realize this and to receive our daily bread with thanksgiving. So what is meant by daily bread? Well, daily bread includes everything that has to do with the support and the needs of the body, such as food, drink, clothing, shoes, house, home, land, animals, money, goods, a devout husband or wife, devout children, devout workers, devout and faithful rulers, good government, good weather, peace, health, self-control, good reputation, good friends, faithful neighbors, and the like. And forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. What does this mean? Well, we pray in this petition that our Father in heaven would not look at our sins or deny our prayer because of them. We are neither worthy of the things for which we pray, nor have we deserved them, but we ask that he would give them to us, to give them all to us by grace, for we daily sin much and surely deserve nothing but God's punishment. So we too will sincerely forgive and gladly do good to those who sin against us. And lead us not into temptation. What does this mean? Well, God tempts no one. We pray in this petition that God would guard and keep us so that the devil, the world, and our sinful nature may not deceive us or mislead us into false belief, despair, and other great shame and vice. Although we are attacked by these things, we pray that we may finally overcome them and win the victory. But deliver us from evil or the evil one. That's actually what the Greek says, from the evil one. We, what does this mean? We pray in this petition, in summary, that our Father in heaven would rescue us from every evil of body and soul, possessions and reputation, and finally, when our last hour comes, give us a blessed end and graciously take us from this valley of sorrow to himself in heaven. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. What does this mean? This means that we should be certain that these petitions are pleasing to our Father in heaven and are heard by him, for he himself has commanded us to pray in this way and has promised to hear us. Amen. Amen means yes, yes, and so shall it be so. You see, that is a far better explanation of the uh, Lord's Prayer than what we're getting from Rob Bell so far. And somehow I get the feeling we're not really going to get a true explanation as to what any of this means. Because we haven't so far, and we are just about halfway through with the sermon. So it acknowledges the spiritual dimension. What can happen is we pay the bills, we put gas in the car, we get groceries, we take a test, we study for another one, we get some Christmas presents... We make sure our insurance is up to date. We shovel the snow. We shovel the snow some more. And very easily, between shoveling the snow, putting gas in the car, and filling out our TPS reports, life becomes the material. It becomes just the stuff in front of us. And so what we need are these reminders of the holiness that is present in all things. What we need sometimes are reminders that this isn't just a coworker in the next cubicle. The holiness in all things? No, hallowed be thy name. He's t the holiness of God. Not the holiness in all things. Oh, yeah, yeah. But this is somebody made in the image of God. 
What we lose or forget or set to the side is our awareness that there's way more than just the details of each day. So the prayer begins with an acknowledgement. Our Father in heaven, holy is your name. I acknowledge that creation is infused with sanctity and holiness. No, holy is God's name. Holy is the Father. (sighs) What is going on here? Why is... uh, Oh, yeah, I forgot. He's a pantheist. I acknowledge a realm beyond just the empirical. I acknowledge that there is a spiritual dimension to everything because everything is spiritual. I acknowledge that by saying, Our Father in heaven... Holy is your name. That also talks about Jesus says, um, please give us our daily bread. Well, bread is very physical. And bread, if you are hungry and haven't eaten and are wondering where your next meal comes from, bread is about as detailed as it gets. Talk to somebody who's hungry about bread and you are talking about the most intimate, basic details of life. Is God in the details? Jesus says, well, you can't get more detailed than your next meal. So the prayer begins with this expansive affirmation that there is more to life. There is a realm. There is holiness. There is a sacred. No, it's a, it's, it's, it is a it's worshiping the the our God and Father and, and acknowledging His holiness. Him. Why is it that, again, I think this is Ron Bell's pantheism coming through here. He's equating God the Father with the creation. That's not what the the Lord's Prayer tells us to do. Value to every single person in every single moment, and then instantly it goes to, oh, so give us our bread. God is this big, and God is in the next meal. Are you with me? And then he talks about trespasses. Forgive us our wrongs as we forgive others who have wronged us. Well, this is relationships. And so in 57 Greek words, he covered... No, this is the forgiveness of sins won by Christ being extended to other people. (sighs) Covers spiritual, the physical, and the fact that we are relational Means. If it just talked about our relationships, just talked about our bread, you'd be missing what kind of undergirds at all. If we just talked about the spiritual without the bread, there'd be like, does this God care about the details? If it was just this God who cares about the details, that's a very small God as opposed to a massive, sort of expansive, transcendent being. And so this prayer covers all of these different dimensions. The Czech scholar Jean Milik Lachman says this the arc of the prayer spans the whole of cosmic reality with its heights and its depth. Now, the prayer also deals with time, linear, forward moving time. The prayer is somehow able to wrap its arms even around how we interact with time itself. Notice what? Does it deal with quantum physics, too? Maybe the law of relativity. Do you see E equals MC squared in here? What? Oh, man. That it deals with forgiveness. Well, when I need forgiveness or when I'm asking for forgiveness, that's something that someone did to us in the past or something we did in the past. But bread, that's present. That's this moment. That's I'm hungry. 
I have very specific details I need help with. That's present. But then lead us not, deliver us, guide us. That is anticipation about the future. So the poem covers, encompasses all of time. It refers to those things in the past, those things that are still haunting us, those things we're still dragging around. Please take care of those. Those things that are present, urgent, and causing a gnawing sort of anxiety in the, in the guts. Please take care of that. And then those sort of fears and worries and concerns we have about what's coming. Please take care of that. In 57 Greek words, Jesus manages to cover the spiritual, the relational, the physical, manages to cover past, present, future. He does some other brilliant things, but I'm probably not interested in them. I am so glad you covered all those bases for us. Whoo! How brilliant. Don't you think you're missing the whole point of what this, this uh, prayer is about? <laughs> I love the way that works. Next. I love this one from Daryl Johnson. To pray the Lord's Prayer is to participate in heaven's invasion of earth. What? To pray the Lord's Prayer is to participate in heaven's invasion of earth? We come in peace. The movement starts here, starts there. It is heaven coming to earth. God, please make this world more the world that you intend it to be. So it has a very strong pull from there, 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 there to here. He also does something else. The poem, the prayer, essentially, has essentially a structure, an internal structure to it in which it's divided into two halves. And the progression, if you see them at sort of the meta, the larger level, oh my word, it's unbelievable. Now, notice this. The first half... He's preaching about this prayer, sort of, but I'm not really learning anything useful here. I find Luther's small catechism to be far more profound in, in, in its depth and its handling of this prayer because it's actually dealing with what the words mean. Your name, your kingdom, your will. Then it shifts to our bread, our forgiveness, our deliverance, guidance. Why? Because it's very easy to make this problem, this stress, this person, this worry, the center of our world. How many of you have ever had something off, wrong, out of kilter, bothering you, and this thing has become the thing that you can't think about anything else but this? You're carrying it around. Every person you're interacting with, you have to tell them about this. It owns you. If this person who wrongs you, this problem you can't get over, this stress, it becomes the center of the universe upon which all the other planets revolve. How many of you know a friend who has this from, from, from time to time? So how does the prayer begin? Our Father, this expansive, inclusive, unbelievable, this God who embraces everything, our Father, your will your passion, your desire for the world, your longing for peace, your love of beauty, your righting of the wrongs, your heart for the underdog. God, your 
will, your compassion, your plans to remake this world, to create a new creation right here in the midst of this one. Your will, your kingdom, your way, your reality, your love. Start there, essentially, Jesus says. Start with God's agenda for the world. And when you start there, don't ignore your desires, your passions, your details, your bread. It's not that those aren't important. Just put them in their proper perspective. And maybe by the time you get to your thing, you will see it in its proper perspective and it won't own you like it currently does. Are you with me? Oh, so this, this is the prayer is all about helping us put proper perspective. Yeah, okay. Place those things that are causing you the most concern, the most stress, the most worry, those things that are eating you alive, keeping you up at night, those things that are just grinding away on your heart, place them in their proper perspective in God's big, beautiful, mysterious world with God's will and desire to remake it all. Place it there and then bring it before God and see if that new perspective doesn't begin to free you. Place okay, so Christ is death on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins doesn't free us. Uh, it's all about having a new perspective and putting things into God's big, beautiful, expansive, creative, mysteriousness thing. Yeah. Um, why do I feel like we're completely missing the point here? Place it in light of who God is and what God is doing and God's pleasure and blessing and favor towards you. God's desire to give you what you need because God knows what you need before you even ask for it. Place it there and then see if it still has the same sort of power over you. Our bread, our forgiveness, our deliverance. He does all of this in 57 words. Now you can't fully Twitter it. You need a couple Twitters. But nevertheless, that is an unbelievable feat. This prayer. What if somebody did that every day, repeatedly? This began to be the way that you saw the world. The divine knows what I need. All of life is holy. Even things like bread have their place in the cosmos. There is an agenda. It is larger than mine. God is more concerned with God's will than I will ever be. I'm going to be okay. I can place myself, all of life, physical, spiritual, relational, I can place all of my life in all of its mystery and ambiguity and all of its dimensions. I can place it all before God. And God is fully capable of caring for me, guiding me, delivering me, rescuing me. Your name, your kingdom, your will. Then it shifts. Our bread, our forgiveness, our deliverance. The next time you have stress about bread, simply ask yourself, where should I start? I start. God, you're holy. Your will be done. Your kingdom come. Now, I have some issues with the bread. Place it in its proper perspective and see if it doesn't lose some of its intimidating power. Now, 
at the end of this. Verse 13, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. That seems to be the end. And if you're looking in your Bible, that looks like it was like a poem. Those are like where it's indented and, and the columns are narrower. But then verse 14, Jesus adds a couple of verses. It's almost like a, oh, by the way, one thing, just to wrap this up. If you forgive others when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. Oh, by the way. Now, this issue of forgiveness, he does touch on earlier. Notice how verse 10 is about your kingdom. Verse 11 is bread. But then 12, he does say, our prayer should be forgive us our debts, as we've also forgiven our debtors. So of all the things, bread, kingdom, heaven, name, temptation, of all the things in the prayer, this one gets singled out and then expound, expanded upon and repeated. If you forgive others when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you don't forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. First off, we'll look at the words, and then we'll ask a couple of questions about the nature of this statement, which is quite astounding. And why does he add it? First off, here are the words. Okay, I want you to listen carefully. I'm going to put this all in perspective here as to what Jesus is getting at with this forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. I'm going to let uh, Bell spin out for just a little bit longer, and then I'm going to circle back, and we're going to take a look at Matthew chapter 18. If you want to get ready, open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 18, and I'm going to start at verse 20, 23, I think. Um, no, 821. We're going to start at verse 21. So keep get your Bible ready. Here we go. Uh, the word forgive uses the word afiame. It's from the word apo from and hiame to send, hiame, to send away. Somebody has wronged us, so we're carrying it around. We have this debt, this wound, this thing. You wouldn't believe what they did to me. And to forgive is to send it away. It's to say, I'm not going to carry this around. I'm going to send it away. And the second, no reference so far to what Christ has done for us. Forgive those, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. This completely begs to have the gospel preached here and for us to understand this in light of, first and foremost, God's forgiveness of our sins by Christ's vicarious death on the cross for our sins. I mean, the gospel is just begging to be preached here. Second, the word he uses for trespasses is a fascinating word. Pair up tomata. You say tomata. I say something else. Its actual root word is the word pipto, which means slips. So you can translate it trespasses or mistakes, but it is the slips, the rolling of the eyes, the cold shoulder, the offhanded sarcastic comment. It's of all the words that refer to trespasses, it's, it's a sort of daily, grounded, earthy. It's all the different ways that we wound each other in passing, in conversation. And so-and-so didn't return my call. So-and-so said this. She said, it refers to deep sort of like, he was unfaithful. She took the money and ran. I mean, it has those, but it also has this sort of all of the thousands of ways we hurt each other. The peeptoes, the slips, the mistakes, the things that end up getting between people. Now, when you read this, if you don't forgive others, I won't forgive you. If you do forgive others, I will forgive you. It instantly has a sort of transactional thing. 
Like, oh, after this beautiful, loving, heavenly Father and this grace you can step into, now all of a sudden it has a sort of like, well, if you don't do this, then I won't do this. And kind of a, if you don't do A, God won't do B. If you do A, God will do B. It has a sort of transaction feel. But perhaps it's less a sort of transaction. If you don't, then God won't. And more a statement about the reality of this God. Now, in order to kind of unpack, perhaps, the large... Yeah, that, that doesn't seem to help. Let me unpack this for him because he's not going to do this. Okay, The perfect cross-reference to this passage is found in Matthew chapter 18. Now, keep in mind, when we talk about Christian sanctification, you do what you do because you are what you are. If you are in Christ, you are a new creation. If God has granted you repentance and the forgiveness of sins and you trust in Christ alone for the forgiveness of your sins and Christ alone is your righteousness and you are trusting in what he has accomplished for you, for your forgiveness and uh, to propitiate God's wrath, then God has worked a miracle in you and you are a new creation in Christ. Part of that, part of that then is, is that you bear fruit in keeping with repentance and what does that fruit look like? You are forgiving others of their trespasses purely on account of the fact that Christ has forgiven you. It flows that way. Now, we read Matthew chapter 18, verse 21. Peter came up to Jesus and said to him, Lord, how often will my, uh, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As, as many as seven times? And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 70 times seven. This mind-bogglingly big number here. What? Now, listen to this parable. It runs through the law. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him ten thousand talents now that's a huge amount of money just you might as well write in one bazillion dollars i mean this is this is a national debt okay and since he could not pay his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made so the servant fell on his knees imploring him have patience with me and i will pay you everything And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. Now, I want to point something out here, okay? You're thinking, well, look, there's no substitutionary atonement there. Yes, there is, okay? If the king canceled the debt, who ends up being saddled with the loss? The king does. The king is the one who incurs the loss. He takes, that's substitution, by the way. We continue. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, I think a month's wages, okay? <clears throat> if, you know, it's, it's a couple thousand bucks, okay? 
And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe me. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. This looks vaguely familiar. Have patience with me, and I will pay you. But he refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. And they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant! I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in his anger, anger, who's the king here? Christ is. In his anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. <clears throat> and sitting there going, oh, yeah, ooh, ooh, ah, this, oh, I'm guilty of not forgiving. Right. This should make you terrified. What's your response? Let me tell you, first and foremost, it should be repentance. Because this nails all of us. Change your mind. You have a brother, sister, friend, co-worker that you have not forgiven. Repent. Christ has forgiven you. Their debt to you is nothing compared to the debt Christ has released you from to God and to himself. Repent. And even that lack of forgiveness, Christ died for it. Repent. And then bear fruit in keeping with that repentance. Forgive, forgive, forgive. It's all about the gospel. The gospel to you, the gospel to others. And keep in mind... The purpose of God's kindness is to lead us to repentance. Even this, even your lack of forgiveness is forgivable. Repent and receive the forgiveness of sins for your unforgiveness. And then bear fruit in keeping with that repentance. I had to tease that out for Rob because he's not really going to get to that. He's going to use some snorkel analogy. Let's continue. Larger truths. I'm going to need to talk about snorkeling. Are there any people who snorkel? You're all like, oh, yeah, snorkeling, of course. That's where we're going next. And then, Jim, if you come up here, I need a volunteer. So I'm going to just volunteer Jim for himself. Those of you who have snorkeled before, you place the mask over your... You take off your glasses so that you will be blind. And then there is this uh, actual snorkel itself. And then you begin breathing. Correct? Now, the snorkel, when you're underwater, is for what? Breathing. Breathing, then, means you need to get air. 
Is it useful for anything else? <laughs> Trick question. You need to get air. What else do you need to do with air? Get rid of air. When people are like, I'm choking, I'm choking, I can't get air. And actually, I just want to clear it up while you're choking. You also aren't able to release air. And not... <laughs> That's really funny to me. <laughs> oh, really? You're choking, you can't breathe, and you say you can't get air? It's actually both. You can't get air and you can't get rid of air, and that's why you're choking. I just didn't want you to, like, pass out without knowing what exactly was happening there. I didn't... <laughs> just made that up on the spot. That was pretty good. A little riff there. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. I'll be here all week. Um, actually, we'll be here all week. Now, uh, so, the snorkel functions it has two central it's not just little snorkels how you get air it's how air comes in and it's how air goes out and it's the rhythmic movement of air in and air out through the same plastic tube that gives you life now if the tube weren't able to function. <laughs> hey, kids. Welcome to asphyxiate the youth pastor Sunday. <laughs> now, if the tube is no longer able to engage in the rhythmic transportation of breath in and out, something starts to happen to Jim Caskeets. He is no longer able to get air, and he is no longer able to get rid of air. <laughs> Why do I turn my back on you? That's just not smart on my part. Is this what Jesus is saying? It is easy to read the end of the Lord's Prayer and say, oh, it's in one of those transactions. If you don't do this, then God won't do this. But is Jesus functioning at a totally higher level of consciousness? Is he, in fact, saying this? Jesus is functioning at a totally different level of consciousness? Those are weird words to be describing what Jesus is doing. Sounds highly influenced by Eastern religions. The love of God that flows to you, it flows through the same pipe that the love of God flows from you to others. And if you crimp and duct tape that snorkel, if you refuse to forgive others, then you have shut off the pipe and you are unable to receive love from God. See what we... Uh, isn't that transactional? <laughs> <clears throat> Repeat after me. A difference that makes no difference is no difference at all. Aye, aye, aye. We do is we split them and we say, oh, yeah, well, so and so they really they, they seriously they jack me over. And, and they, I'm no way am I going to send that one away. Now, forgiveness is different than condoning, it's different than consequences, different than legal ramifications, it's different than reconciliation. We've covered this ground often. But if we say, there's no way I'm sending that one away, we at that moment are duct taping the snorkel. Transaction. 
And we are inhibiting the flow of God's love to us. It's the same pipe. We split them and say, oh, I can have this grievance with this person. Oh, but then God and I, God and I are all right. And apparently, when we continue to hold on to this grievance and we don't send it away, us and God are not all right. It is not us and them and then us and God. It is us and them and God. You duct tape the snorkel and you've cut off the air both ways. Is there anybody that you need to forgive? And is Jesus saying in the prayer at the end when he adds those two little verses, is Jesus in fact saying, you want to know this God? Do you want to find yourself swimming in the ocean of this God's love and compassion? What? Do I want to find myself swimming in the ocean of this God's love and compassion? What? (laughs) Huh? This sounds Eastern. It sounds like it's from Hinduism or Buddhism or something. Swimming in the ocean of God's... When did Jesus talk about going swimming in his ocean of love? Swimming in the ocean of love. Then you are going to have to, at the very street level, blood and guts. Before he says anything, you're going to have to. If you want to swim in the ocean of God's love, then you are going to have to. Law. This is law. This is transaction. Even though he said it wasn't, it is. If you want this, then you're going to have to. Mistakes, slips, grievances, and wounds level, you're going to have to extend my love to others because that's how it will keep flowing to you. How do you come? The way it flows to us is through Christ. And him bringing us to repentance and the forgiveness of sins. And it said, if you do not forgive your brother from your heart, only God, through the preaching of repentance and the forgiveness of sins, law and gospel, changes somebody's heart from a heart of stone to a heart of flesh. The heart transformed by Christ forgives. That's what it does. Come to know this God, forgive people. Forgive people in your Trinitarian community. Forgive people when they wrong you, and you will know what this God's love is like. Is there anybody, as we come and take communion, Uh, he just turned the gospel into the law, that you need to just send it away. You just need to let it go. Stop bringing it up. Okay, now, this is a, we're coming up on the part where you're going to hear him talk about the cross. Remember from our previous segment, the Velvet Atonement, what he did with that and what it means. Keep those definitions that you learned previously in mind here when he speaks of these things so that you don't make the mistake of thinking he's talking about what Christianity teaches. Stop telling everybody how wrong it was. Is there anything that you have held close and you have nursed that thing and God is saying to you today, 
Send it away because you're clogging the snorkel and you're barely breathing and your face is turning blue. Is there any dimension of life that needs to be brought before God today? As we take the What is a dimension of life? Is there any dimension of life that needs to be brought before God today? I don't know. What is it? What's a dimension of life and how do I know what that is and how to find one? Huh? What is this? The bread and dip it in the cup. At the heart of everything we do here and our understanding of the world is that the world has not been forgotten or lost by God, but that God has inaugurated a rescue operation. It begins with Jesus, who gives his life for us, who dies in our place, who frees us from our sins, and then is resurrected. At the heart of everything for us is this Christ pattern of death and resurrection. We die. At the heart of everything is this Christ pattern? Uh, What about the... Atonement. How about Christ's death on the cross? Huh? So that we can live on. We are brought down with Christ and then we are raised with Christ. Is there? Uh, no, no, that's baptism language. Is there any problem you are facing that is simply too big and you can't fix it? And so today you simply say, God, I place this all before you. I die so that I can live. My ideas haven't fixed it. My energy hasn't solved it. My strength and my ability to control hasn't worked. So I just, I surrender all that stuff. That didn't work in the first place. Here. Oh, okay. Is this repentance? You know, I was doing it my way, but it wasn't really working right. So, you know, I'm just going to surrender and do it your way, God. Is this repentance? Is this contrition and sorrow for sins? Is this what was really ticking inside of the mind of the uh, the tax collector? Where when the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, where the tax collector said, couldn't even look up to heaven, beat his breast and said, "Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner." Could we really tr- retranslate that and say, "Oh, the way what we really need to understand is when he was saying, "Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner." What he was really saying is, "You know, I've tried it my way and." You know, things aren't really working well. I really want to succeed in life, and so I surrender. I'm going to do it your way. Here it is. Here it is. You take it. I need a resurrection. For us, in the scriptures, this... I need a resurrection? Notice he's taken Christ's pattern of death and resurrection, allegorized it, and now applied it to our own life and problems. Yeah, well, you need to you, you need to uh, die to your way of doing things and and have a resurrection. This is how you keep alive Jesus' work of restoration and renewal. This is the moment of anticipation. God has not forgotten about the world, but is in fact putting it all back together. And so communion is a very visceral. I mean, it's he's putting it all back together. No, God's going to destroy the world. Are you not familiar with what the scriptures teach on this? Hang on a second here, opening up my uh, my Lutheran study Bible um, to the book of Isaiah. I read about this this morning. Oh, yeah, here it is, Isaiah chapter 65, uh, verse 17. Um, Behold, I create a new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. Uh, but be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy, 
and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and will be glad in my people. No more shall it be heard in the sound of weeping or the cry of distress. No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not fill out his days. For the young man shall die a hundred years. Uh, the young, For the young man shall die a, a hundred years old. And for the sinner, a hundred years old shall be accursed. Um, yeah, it, it says that God's going to create a new heavens and a new earth. If you read Peter, it says that he's going to melt the elements. The stars are going to fall from the sky. Um, it, it, there's another passage that says that God's going to roll up the uh, the earth like a scroll, like it's warring, it wore out or something here. Huh. Yeah. Completely different eschatology here than the biblical eschatology, too. Dipping bread in a cup, it's his sort of you can handle it with your hands it's as like as physical and real as you can get we take this grand idea of god rescuing the world and then we go through this ritual as a way of putting hands on it we believe it we trust him uh, this is a crazy uh, view of the lord's supper too we give our lives to him is there anybody that you need to bring before god today you have not been extending to them the love of God, and you are essentially duct-taping the snorkel. So we need to send it away so that you can receive. Transaction. So let's pray, and then um, there will be people all around the stage who would love to pray with you. If you have a specific person, if you have a specific issue. All right, we're done. So that's our sermon from Rob Bell on forgiveness and apparently on the Lord's Prayer. And quite a dismal job that he did there and uh, not only that that thing was peppered through with all kinds of weird eastern concepts and terminology yeah um i yep smell sulfur sulfur on that one listen folks the biblical gospel is so simple i mean it's so simple what did jesus say luke 24 go out and proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins in jesus name Forgiveness of sins. Forgive, let me, let me really say that again. Forgiveness of sins. That means telling people of their rebellion, of their sinfulness, of the sins they've committed against God, and the good news that Christ died on the cross for those sins. Repent. Stop thinking you're a good person and it's, everything's okay and, and that you're a decent person. Repent. See yourself for what you really are a sinner in need of a savior and trust in Christ and what he's done for the forgiveness of your sins. Doesn't get any simpler than that. And it is not the voice of our good shepherd, Jesus Christ, who turns us away from the simple teaching. Unfortunately, that would be the voice of the devil and those who are under his control, preaching his false doctrines and his false gospels. Sad but true. Folks, <clears throat> if you are learning, growing in your discernment, growing in sound biblical doctrine, Christian apologetics, good theology, as a result of what we do here at Fighting for the Faith, then please join our Fighting for the Faith pirate Christian radio crew. Uh, we are only able to bring this program to you because of your generous support for this program. And as we approach the beginning of the year, we are rapidly approaching the end of our uh, generous financial contributions that have made it possible for us to uh, continue here. Uh, we've received a very large donation from a very generous uh, giver, and that comes to an end in February. And so it's absolutely imperative 
for the longevity of this program as well as Pirate Christian Radio that you support our efforts by uh, financially contributing. And the easiest and best way to do it is to join our Fighting for the Faith Pirate Christian Radio crew. It is a mere $6.95 a month. And uh, when you join, you get access to our Pirate Christian Code. Uh, click on the button at the end of the uh, when you process your uh, your membership there. You'll click on a button that will give you information on how to do it. Again, so the way you do this is go to fightingforthefaith.com. Click on Join Our Crew. And, of course, if you'd like to donate above and beyond or a flat donation, you could do so by uh, clicking on the Donate button or making your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and sending it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 4. Six zero three eight. All right. So, what'd you think? <clears throat> I'd love to get your feedback, and uh, you can send that feedback to me via email. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there again, pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for your sins. Amen.